Hello everybody, welcome to the Chenzor Dynasty here on twitch.tv slash jchenzor. I am your host, James Chen, aka jchenzor, and we are here for the inaugural episode of OK Sonic Boomer, <laughs> which is a great name by the way, shout outs to Olaf Redland about that. And I am joined here by Mr. Corey Bell from San Diego FGCs. Say hi to everybody, Corey. Hi everybody, I'm Corey Bell. Uh... <laughs> FGC player, gamer, streamer, whatever you want to call me. <laughs> uh, person in the FGC for the past nine years. Dang, have you Played. really been in the FGC for nine years now? 2011, yeah. Dang. Uh, it was the year I met Olaf, and he got me to go to locals. Dude, you're like freaking a veteran now. <laughs> Isn't That's the craziest part to think about. Sorry to go slightly off tangent of okay. just... Street Fighter 4 players, you know, you hear the term O-Niner, and that was, you know, that was like a bad thing, and now, now O-Niners are veterans. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, obviously, uh, you're, I mean, nine years in, but you're, how old are you right now? Uh, I am 24, gonna be 25 here in just about two months. Oh, nice. Um, okay. So, just because relevant to the conversation, uh, I was born in May of 95, Okay. meaning that I'm a month younger than Mortal Kombat 3, which came out in April of 95. <laughs> oh, man. I was in college when MK3 came out, no. I think. Uh, look, obviously, what we're doing here on OK Sonic Boomer is that we are going to talk about all sorts of old school fighting game community stuff. I mean, we're talking like super old, old, old school here. And so a lot of you are guy of people out there are going to be wondering, you know, so why am I bringing Corey on here? I see Alex Vi in the chat. So, you know, like, why don't I bring Alex on? I would love to bring Alex on one of these days. So, you know, Alex, that's an open invite for you to jump on the stream and tell some stories at some point in time. But the reason why is uh, if people are not aware of this, uh, so uh, my roommate is uh, Olaf Redland, and Olaf, and as uh, you just mentioned, Olaf was one that kind of introduced you into the fighting game community, and you became really good friends with Olaf. So through Olaf, I've become very good friends with you. And uh, the two of us have, you know, hung out a bunch of times. And every time we've hung out, you always like to ask me all these questions about old school FGC. You're always like, what was it like back then? What was this like? How was this situation? And I always start telling all these stories and rambling about it and everything. And then I'm like, why don't we stream this? You know, <laughs> it's it's the FGC is already a very interesting culture it's a very diverse community you know you have people from all different backgrounds all different languages cultures and so that in itself is already interesting and we have obviously we should have this very very interesting history that i feel isn't really documented mm -hmm. enough so i've always wanted to ask og players <laughs> og community members anything any any bit of information you can give me about hey what was it like back then what are, what are things that we wouldn't even consider today that was the norm back then yeah i mean there was one person who actually asked me one time they're like what was the fgc back like in during world warrior and i was like there was no fgc <laughs> You know, like, what were tournaments like back then? And I was like, uh, <laughs> nothing like you imagine now. So, but I mean, that's the thing is that I know you as a person have a very strong 
you know, I call you an FGC history sponge because I know you really, really like finding out all this history and you have a strong respect, not even just for fighting game history, but I feel like for video game history as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to bring you on here because I've always wanted to do an old school story stream like this, but I just don't know what to talk about. And I'm also afraid that if I just start talking about things that I'm going to talk about things as if they're normal and people aren't going to, you know, I want someone to be able to stop me and go, wait, what? What was what did it was like, you know, and that's kind of what I have Corey here to curate and just to kind of even see questions from the chat. And, you know, he can pick and choose questions from the chat as well. Uh, I'm sure he's in the chat. So you can do at Corey Bell. Uh, is it Corey Bell or Corey Bell FGC on this? Uh, it should be Corey Bell on Twitch. Yeah, okay, so Corey Bell Twitch, FGC is my Twitter handle. Yeah, you can just uh, do at Corey Bell, uh, just like it says at the bottom, but without the FGC. And you can ask him questions to ask me. Or, uh, you know, he's just here basically to, to pick my brain and, and see where this goes. Because uh, I have a funny feeling this is going to go in a lot of fun directions. But, uh, I mean, before we get started on everything, I just want to talk about this graphic that we have in case people... This is really hard to do. <laughs> I can't do this very well. This graphic that we have here, uh, in case people aren't aware of what this is, this is an old school... Uh, this is the box art from Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition on the Sega Genesis. Uh, it's only part of the box art, and I obviously added the crappy, old, you know, dirty frame on purpose <laughs> to try to make it's it look as art, old and dude. ghetto as possible. Art. But this was what the box art was. The box art for the Genesis Street Fighter 2 was the main bad guy kicking the American hero. I never understood the decision for that. <laughs> oh, man. I, I guess it was just supposed to show just how much of a badass Bison's supposed to be as a bad guy, as he <laughs> has this weird buck teeth, you know, thing going on. I mean, if it was supposed to be based off of Champion Edition originally, which it was, it was supposed to be, this was the appropriate people to put on there because Bison was the best and Guile was the only one who could fight him. And so this kind of worked out in, a, in an interesting way, but I just thought it would be appropriate, one, because the picture's old and Guile looks so sad, so it kind of goes with the OK Sonic Boomer theme. <laughs> it just kind of worked really, really well. Yeah, dude, oh, I mean, look, people are, Vi's already mentioned that Bison and Champion Edition was broken. And uh, people are asking how. Do you mind if I just go on a tangent real quick Please, about that? I would love to know, actually, myself. Uh, so Bison Scissor Kick was plus on block, uh, plus on hit. Hit stun and block stun were the same in both games. And uh, Scissor Kick, low strong, stand forward or stand roundhouse was a four hit combo that stunned you. And uh, then he could do low jab, low jab, stand jab, scissor kick, low strong, stand forward, and you would get stunned again. He had a re-dizzy combo. Uh, his crouch fierce worked as an anti-air against everybody. His standing kicks were all super fast. They were like ridiculously fast. And then on top of everything, his psycho crusher hit like five times if you blocked it. You would go block it and go And then he could just, by the time you landed, you had crossed the opponent up during like the second hit. So if you just held the other direction, you would start charging the Psycho Crusher in the other direction. And if it hit just right, you would land right after a hit. So the opponent would be stuck in block stun and you'd Psycho Crusher again and go. And you just chip them. And you just, just chip did this until they died. Or 
uh, you would just throw them afterwards if you cycle crushered them in the corner. You would just mash on buttons. And if you were too early, you would punch them and be plus on block. And dude, he was ridiculous. And like Vi said, it could cross up as well. But James, you're not allowed to throw people in Street Fighter 2. I've, <laughs> I, I've heard the legends. Dude, it's so crazy uh, how much, like, it's changed now that, you know, throws are so accepted. But I think the reason why people hated throws back in the days is because they were one frame and they were super far. Like, that, you just grab people from so far away. But, yeah, uh, back and in the day. was different, too. What's that? Damage was different, yeah. and you couldn't tech throws initially. Yeah, and, and, and you would get into fights. You would literally get into fights with people uh, if you threw them because it was considered so cheap. It was like, oh, you can't play fair, blah, blah, blah. Because the thing about it is if the opponent could do low, short, low, short throw and time it perfectly, you really couldn't do anything except throw them first or try to go for an uppercut. But I'm not even sure 100% how reversals worked in World Warriors. So I'm not even sure if that would if uppercuts could beat it in those situations. And uh, so a lot of times you could kill a lot of people and there was literally nothing they could do about it. They would just eat the throws over and over and over again. And uh, yeah, people would get super, super mad and... At, at, at one point in time, most arcades implemented something called throwbacks. That if you ever threw someone, you had to be like, oops, my bad, my bad. And then the other, you let the person throw you back. Even free, if it killed damage you. Back in. Even if it killed you, you would let them throw you back. Because otherwise, you would get stabbed or thrown in real life, as people joke about in the chat over there. <laughs> so I do want to go into that history as well, basically how... how true that is and if you have any stories about that but uh i the questions i had or one i want to start off with if if we're okay to move on a little bit yeah go for it was uh personal history regarding arcades um was one do you actually remember what what do you, what is your oldest arcade memory of, of did you like play at an arcade or did you play at like a pizza parlor that had an arcade machine uh, what do you, do you remember anything like that uh my f my arcade and where i fell in love with video games so uh when i was really young and i was uh you know in grade school basically uh my parents owned a chinese restaurant uh in redlands california and uh, we would get picked up from school. And on our Mondays, that was the day in which all of the waitresses had a day off at the restaurant. And so my mom couldn't pick me and my brother up and drop us off at home and then go to work. She had to just take us straight to work. And so mm -hmm. me and my brother... We were those little Asian the old children that were sitting in one of the booths in the corner, you know, <laughs> of the restaurant. Doing your homework or... Yeah, doing homework or drawing or whatever. And there was a mall across the street, a mini mall, uh, the Redlands Mall. And a lot of times, you know, our mom would then just give us like $2, $1 to buy some hot dog on a stick over there <laughs> and then uh, eat some hot dog on a stick. And then we would have one whole dollar left to split 50 cents between myself and my brother and go to the arcade 
at the Redlands Mall. Aladdin's Castle is what it was called. And uh, that's where we played. And, and, you know, that's where I fell in love with video games. Uh, I, I still remember the very first video game I've ever played was a game called Starhawk which was this vector graphics game that was inspired by the trench run in Star Wars until they actually make the Star Wars video game. So, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's my history. And from there I played games like dig dug and kangaroo elevator action journey flippy, uh, flicky. I'm sorry. Flicky is what it's called. Dragon's Lair, super Mario brothers. And, uh, Street Fighter 2 was never there by the time my parents actually sold the restaurant. And so uh, I never got to... I I started playing Street Fighter 2 there a little bit when I was in high school because we moved to Redlands. But that was after we had already sold the restaurant. Mm, Okay. Um, What was the name of that arcade again? Uh, Aladdin's Castle. It was actually a uh, franchise. That existed. In fact, uh, there was a much larger one in the Inland Center Mall, uh, which is, I don't think, called the Inland Center Mall anymore. Uh, but it was that was in San Bernardino as well. And uh, that Inland Center Mall, oh, that arcade there, oh, man, I used to love that arcade so much. I used to love that. We went, every time I had a chance to go there, it was like, one of the things that makes me sad uh, is that a lot of people who don't experience arcades today won't know that weird euphoria of of the transition between outside of an arcade and inside of an arcade. It doesn't matter how old you are. When you're walking towards an arcade and you can start hearing all those sounds and everything kind of bleeding out the door... And as soon as you step in and the, the noise from outside gets drowned out by the cacophony of all the game sounds inside. I mean, you've probably felt it when you walk into like some of the arcades in Japan. You still get this kind of excitement, this weird like butterflies as you walk in there. Feel the, you feel the electricity just running through your body of like, oh man, I hear all these sounds. Yeah. I want to see what's going on. I want to see what games people are playing. Dude, I mean... Oh, I love it. Crack Prawn in the, in the chat jokes about Storm going, ha, ha, ha. But that was like way ooh, after ooh, my ooh. time. I would go in there and hear Galaxian and Galga. That's what I would hear all the time. But man, it, it's like... It is unlike any feeling that I can remember. I, even to this day, every time I think about that feeling of going from outside to inside the arcade and, you know, being excited. And, and like uh, Marlizzi says in the chat about going up to the change machine, you're just like, like, you're like, get the, get the money in there. And that doesn't take your bill. And you're like, no, I want to play, you know. With the 80s wood finish. Oh, that yeah. Change machine. <laughs> And it's funny because I still have dreams of going to arcades. I have that, a a very frequent dream I have is going to an arcade and trying to find a game that I really want to play there. And it's almost always Dragon's Lair or Elevator Action and I can never find those games at the arcade or I find Dragon's Lair and it's this weird, completely different version than the one that I was used to growing up. So and it, so it always kind of turns into this weird nightmare that I can't find the game that I want to play at the arcade. <laughs> I 
remember oh, actually question do you when you think of arcades do you generally think of like a well-lit arcade or do you think of like a dim like you know carpeted like <laughs> like what what is your would your generic arcade like what do you think of it's it's dark it's always gonna be dark it's and in fact the that one at the redlands mall is the one that usually appears in my dreams that's the one that shows up the most in there the layout and everything i still remember how it was and where it was located in the mall uh so almost always it's darkly lit in fact I think the really only brightly lit arcade that I can remember frequenting a lot was Southern Hills Golfland because uh, that place was actually super well lit and I really liked that about the environment. And honestly, I feel like one of the reasons why arcades are having trouble existing today is because they haven't gone back and re-looked at all the stuff and instead do more lit arcade, well-lit arcades. And, you know, before you went to arcades because you couldn't play anything like that at home. Nowadays, everything you play at home is vastly superior to what you want in the arcades. So back in the days, you just made wall-to-wall arcades. You put as many arcade cabinets in there as possible for people to play the variety. You wanted everything in there. That's not the important part anymore. So now arcades need to be more of a social environment, which is why something like Southern Hills Golfland succeeded. The food there was surprisingly cheap and and didn't kill you. It was surprisingly actually not terrible food there. And, uh, you know, it was a social environment for people to hang out. And that's why things like Button Mash and, and, and you know, 82 and all these different uh, barcades are working because it's turned it into that social environment, which I think is the right way to do arcades now. I definitely think so. But the barcade scene is doing good. And I'd imagine, even though they're slightly different, you know, things like Round 1 and to, to an extent... Uh, like Dave and Buster's are still succeeding because they're turned to social, like, you know, beer, food, event yeah. places where you could hang out with people, do other stuff. Yeah. Although, round one is an arcade. I thought it was only a karaoke booth. That's all I ever do. No, I'm <laughs> no. no. I will, every I, I time go I go to round one, I end up karaokeing. But anyway. <laughs> no, I could go for hours in the karaoke booths at round one. I, I, they're, they're great. They're great. Okay. We need to do that one of these days then. We need to. <laughs> Sponsor us round one, please. Yes. All right, anyways, just kidding. <laughs> uh, so, uh, my arcade history, funny enough. Actually, no, real quick. With with that said, do you remember what your first fighting game was? Was it was it a uh, World Warrior? Yeah, yeah, it was Street Fighter Two, and because uh, Street Fighter Two literally was. I mean, I, I kind of told the story in like this little Street Fighter documentary a long time ago, but I can repeat it here again. Uh, the interesting thing about arcade games was that, you know, arcade games, your goal was to last as long on a quarter as possible, right? So all arcade games were one-player games, and you just got good at lasting on a quarter as, pos- as long as possible. And so a lot of the new games that kept coming out would try to find cheesy ways to kill you fast. Like there was the robot, RoboCop Data E side-scroller that you never could recover your health and you always had one life. Like you didn't even have multiple lives. They just like killed you and took you out. Uh, I did not play any of those games. No, Crack Prawn. I did not play Street Fighter 1, Yi'ar Kung Fu, or Karate Champ uh, before Street Fighter 2. I did play Kung Fu, but that's not a fighting game. Uh, but that, that was the thing, is you played a lot of those games because you tried to make your quarter last as long as possible. 
the interesting thing about Street Fighter 2 is when it first came out, you know, it, it changed a lot because now all of a sudden everything became competitive and and shout outs to Capcom, they found the genius way of stealing your credits was not by making the computer cheat, but by having somebody else beat you. <laughs> having someone else take the coin for you. Yeah, and they so would get mad the and they would jump back in to try to play and, and keep playing. And, and even still, when I first... So uh, I found out about Street Fighter 2 because I have an older brother. He's three and a half years older than I am. And when he went to college, he, uh, UCLA had one of the best video arcades uh, at the time. I've it, heard the legends. Yeah, and in fact, that's exactly why I went to UCLA because uh, <laughs> I got accepted to UCLA and Berkeley and I picked UCLA because UCLA had the better arcade. Like, no, no lie. <laughs> and, I... Uh, I I heard it had a really good Street Fighter 2 and even like a Street Fighter 3 scene. Oh, yeah. Dude, the people there were so good. And uh, I mean, I could tell stories about some of the old school players that were there. But uh, my brother was going there and Street Fighter 2 released. And he after he played it, everybody was going crazy about the graphics. And, you know, you played games like Pit Fighter and all these other games where you fight all these computers and whatever like that. But Beat em ups. What's that? Like a, like beat 'em ups, you know, like yeah. double dragon, you know, it's stuff where it's not competitive or not a fighting game, so to mm-hmm. speak. Or you're just beating up goons up, kind of thing. And the crazy thing about it was, you were never able to use any of those characters. But now, all of a sudden, in Street Fighter Two, you had this game. By the way, the graphics were beautiful at the time. They were just like, oh my god, these sprites are amazing. And not only that, but when you lost to the Russian giant Russian wrestler, you could pick the giant Russian wrestler, which was very, very different. (laughs) And so uh, what was interesting is my brother called me and was like, oh my God, there's this new game, Street Fighter. It's amazing. And like what I was picturing in my head looked nothing correct. He was like, there's this Indian guy who stretches. And I pictured a guy in a turban, of course, because I was racist back then, (laughs) you know, and uh, and funny thing is he has a turban now. I Uh, was just about to say that he has a turban now. (laughs) Oh, man. But uh, then the next weekend that my brother came and visited, we were determined to go see if we could find it in our local arcades. Uh, in San Bernardino and trust me you did not go to local arcades in San Bernardino there's a reason why arcades have the reputation that they do Uh, they were always kind of shady always a little dangerous especially the little mom and pop uh, arcade shops but sure enough we found a Street Fighter 2 at one of them called Laser Blast uh, I think Vi's been to Laser Blast before. Uh, he might have been there before. I'm not sure. But it was in the San Bernardino region. And we played there. And, you know, f- starting from that point, we went there and played constantly. But we only played against the computer. It was just that we couldn't break out of that mentality that all we wanted to do was play against the computer because we felt like playing against each other would be a waste of money because your money would go so fast. You know? Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, because every single loss, that's 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 money. Uh-huh. Someone and, loses, someone's losing money. Yeah, and I was a poor high schooler back then. I, I didn't have that kind of money to spend on arcade games, you know? And uh, yeah, I guess uh, Auric is saying the same way it was in Japan. You started by playing the CPU. I still remember the very first versus match I ever played. Me and my brother were like, let's try to play this. Let's try to play each other and see what happens. Uh, at the time, there was this interesting, you know, you just learn how to beat all the computer AI. 
And for Guile, who was my brother's first character, I played Chun-Li as the first character. And uh, my brother had the strategy in which he beat the computer Blanca. You would not, you would throw the computer Blanca, walk up to him, and when he got up, jump over him. And the computer Blanca would always hit close heavy kick, which for some reason was his crouching heavy kick. <laughs> you would hit standing heavy kick and his close-up heavy kick was the same animation as his crouching heavy kick. It actually made a different hit sound. It made the fierce hit sound for no reason, but that's just how it was. But he would always do that. So you jump over him, throw him, jump over him when he got up, he would do that move, throw him, and you would loop that until he died. And uh, just to give you an idea of where I started in fighting games, I played Chun-Li against my brother's Guile. And we were fighting and he threw me and he just decided to use that strategy on me too. So he jumped over me and I got up and he jumped over me. I was so scared I would mash heavy punch and Chun-Li would do her close-up heavy punch. He would land and throw me and he jumped and did it again and I would just mash and hit heavy punch and he threw me and I died and I was like, you can't do anything about that. That's totally unfair. You're cheating. This, this is stupid. And then I was determined to never play another person ever again because it was impossible to beat that. And so, uh, yes, even back, people who watched me stream Street Fighter V, I was the exact same way even 20 years ago, <laughs> whining and crying about everything and how bad my characters were. <laughs> I mean, just but just imagine that though, right? In like you know, even modern times, people just say like, oh yeah, you just you know, you lose a lot, you you get better over time, you learn from your mistakes, and back in the day, you had to pay money every time you lost. <laughs> to try again mm -hmm. so think about that barrier of entry like now it's you, know, you buy the game once sure and then you could keep playing as much as you want right. you know you you could keep going until you give up but back then if you ran out of money oh i'm done i'm done for the day i guess yeah. uh vi likes to call it the walk of shame where you have to go get more tokens you know, like you, you lose to someone and you can see the guy opening their wallet and walking to the change machine. He called that the walk of shame, you know, and that was always a satisfying feeling. And uh, I, yeah, and, and, and one of the other things, too, is like people also don't realize how long it took us to learn a lot of this stuff in fighting games. Uh, everybody could throw a sonic boom at the start of the round and never throw it again because nobody understood the concept of charge. But it was always round one, fight, and you would hold back on the controller during round one, fight, which would charge. And then you could throw the sonic boom at the beginning, but we didn't realize that, that that was part and parcel of doing the move, was holding back. So we would sonic boom, and then we would never be able, we would hit back forward punch, back forward punch, and nothing would happen. And we could never throw a sonic boom again. <laughs> did, did they not have, like, or at least when you remember playing Street Fighter, did they not have, like, the move list marquees on the cabinet? Nope. There was nothing there. <laughs> there wow. was nothing there. And that's why they actually put that whole 1 in 5, 1, 12 chance uh, feature in Street, in Street Fighter 2 that when you hit a button to do a normal move, one out of every 512 times you hit the button, it would just trigger a special move. So you would know they were in the game. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, uh, you know, some of these moves are so hard to do. Again, me and my brother have gotten into millions of fights about Street Fighter 2. Anyone who's had a sibling that they played Street Fighter 2 with, you just hated each other and you get into fights all day. <laughs> Do you have a sibling that you played Street Fighter with? 
so that's actually a reason why I've gotten so much into retro gaming, retro game culture. I have an older brother who's seven years older than me. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, my history was, you know, once again, born in 95. I had a brother and... When I was growing up, we already had a Super Nintendo. I was watching my brother play Super Nintendo all the time, okay, okay. but it wasn't for fighting games, but it was for other Capcom games. I, I loved Mega Man ever since I was a kid because I watched my brother play Mega Man X 1 through 3 all the time nice. on, super, super, on our Super Famicom specifically. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm reading in the chat here, you know, like some people talking about how it took a while to figure out to do a Shoryuken. Like we were told how to do a Shoryuken, but I was so scared. that We were also not confident in our own Shoryuken. I still remember. So the boss Bison in Street Fighter 2 World Warrior, before he Psycho Crushers, he would go. And then he'd Psycho Crusher. Like he literally stood there for like a second to be like, I'm about to Psycho Crusher. <laughs> and, and don't forget too that the game is like three times slower than what we're used to now. I mean, it was literally like, you know, then he would like Psycho Crusher. And the first time I managed to uppercut that and he took extra damage when you hit him out of that move, I felt like such a god when I uppercutted him out of that. And like nowadays we uppercut Blanca balls, you know, and like, but you mm. know, this slow ass psycho crusher, the first time I ever uppercutted that, I was like, I am the best fighting game player ever. I was so happy. I am a god. <laughs> and, and your, your eyes start glowing and you, know, you see like an aura is emanating from your fingertips. Yeah. My eyeballs disappear like bison up here, you know, <laughs> but you know, well, where I was going with me talking about me and my brother fighting all the time, you know, the computer Zangief would do spinning pile driver and it would drain this giant chunky, it would drain a third of your life. And so my brother was like, you have to be able to do the spinning pile driver. And I was like, no, it's a computer only move because if people could do it, it's too cheap. Like they would not give people this move. And my brother's like, there's gotta be a way. And so we tried uppercuts and spin kicks and fireballs and charge moves and everything. And we just couldn't do it. And so we kept putting in quarters and, you know, back in the day, uh, I don't know if people realize this. And again, this is all tangents, but this is kind of the point. Uh, there were a maximum of 10 rounds in Street Fighter II World Warrior. If you tied, it would go to round two, tied round three, tied round four, tied round five, tied round six, and it would go all the way to final round after round nine. And so what a lot of people would do is they'd play seriously until someone's just about to die and they'd be like, stop, 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 stop. And then you'd chip each other down to the exact same health, tie, and then play the next round and then do it again and then tie and then do it again. And then you played 10 rounds of fighting games, basically. <laughs> That was the tech. That, that was, was the, the tech. tech. And uh, that's why they got rid of that. <laughs> that's why they got rid of that. But that's what me and my brother were doing to lab on how to do Zangief spinning pile driver. And uh, at one point in time, we gave up. And so, like, my brother walked up to me and was like, I don't know, and just started mashing and spinning the controller in all directions. And then Zangief whiffed the medium punch. And then all of a sudden, huh! and then we saw the spinning pile driver and we were like, how did you do oh my god oh, no, oh. we went crazy and uh we never figured out how we did that until until we were finally told like later but we were shown that a human could do it 
And uh, again, there was no internet back there. We had no FAQs to go to. We had no magazines weren't putting anything about the game or anything. And so that was the kind of the environment we lived in. We just had no way to disseminate information uh, between what you saw in your local arcade was what you could do. And that was it. And that was it. And uh, case in point, uh, when two-in-ones buffering started becoming a thing, uh, that took a while before we even learned about buffering. And so my brother would come up to me, would come home from college, and he was like, yeah, it's really crazy. These Guile players are like doing jump fierce, low strong in the flash kick, and the whole thing hits, and you can't block in between. And I was like, huh, that's weird. And so I would go to the arcade and try, and I would do jump fierce, low strong, wait till low strong finished, tried to flash kick. Because the idea of canceling a normal move was so weird that it wasn't even something that I thought of trying to do. And it wouldn't work as a combo. And I'm like, how do these guys do that? I mean, that, it took forever for us to learn even how to do two-in-ones and, and canceling. And, you know, it's crazy because everybody's who tries to get into fighting games has to learn these things in day one now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's the crazy part, right? Back in the day, you know, Street Fighter 2 was kind of the first of its kind, you know, of, of, of a competitive fighting game. And so while these concepts were brand new, and I, I'm sure this is a point that a lot of people know about, but, you know, the, the can canceling wasn't even an official mechanic. It wasn't <laughs> a feature. Yeah. It was... It was a bug, technically. It was a bug, and they were like, this is kind of good. Let's keep it. <laughs> it, it was cool. It was really cool. Uh, so Serpa asks in the chat, did the arcade manuals not have move lists in them either? I mean, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Nobody saw any of these arcade manuals. You know, like, arcade manuals were never a thing because, you know, arcade owners just put the cabinets out there and... That's arcade culture. You just walked up to a machine, tried it, watched the attract screen, and just tried stuff. You know, there was yeah. almost never instructions on any arcade games. And we just had that kind of mentality when we played video games in the arcade. You just saw something that looked interesting, tried it, and found things out as you went. There, there was almost never any information on how to play these things. I mean, that was the thing as well, is that, you know, a lot, back in the day, especially, you know, I'd imagine a lot of arcade owners weren't, like, game buffs or, you know, arcade buffs. They just had a business. Here's a cabinet. Have fun. <laughs> make me money. Yep. So they, yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, I'm not even sure because, like, you know, nowadays, uh, being older, I, it would be easier to go and try to find the owners and talk to them and stuff. I mean, one of the cool things is that um, uh, the worker at the laser blast arcade where we first started playing street fighter 2 uh was this girl named mary uh, i always remember her name because her name was mary valley and she told me that her parents wanted to jokingly name her misty green so she would be misty green valley uh, <laughs> and they changed their mind at the last second but uh she was the one who worked there and you know the giant crew of us all became really good friends uh, with her, and then she would actually give us free credits on Street Fighter Two every once in a while and stuff. So, it's it's interesting you bring that up because I was about to mention once again. You know, you you guys had to come up with interesting tactics in order to extend the value of your credit. You know, like getting ties because you know if 
back in that time, you know, if you lost, that that was your money gone. Oh yeah. And so you, the the amount you you uh the amount of time you got to spend playing was dependent on how skilled you were, how much money you had, or if you knew someone who worked at the arcade yeah. who could give you credits. Oh, there's other ways to do it too. <laughs> Tell me more. Tell uh, me more. One of my friends, uh, good friends was one of the best uh, Mortal Kombat 2 players in Southern California. And uh, he used the token on a string trick. I don't know if you've heard about this. Uh, definitely, definitely. So basically he would get the, you would take a string, you tape it to the end of a quarter, and then what you would do is you would slide it down the slot to just where it flicks the switch to give you a credit and then he would tape it to the cabinet and block it with his leg so nobody could see it. And every time he wanted a credit, he would just reach down and brush the string, which would pull the quarter up and back down onto the trigger and give him another credit. And he would beat people on the thing and they would walk up with their quarter and about to put in. He's like, I accidentally put in too many credits here. Let me just take your coin and then just use my credit. And he would do that and actually just, uh, and, and then as soon, whenever he was done, all you had to do was untape it and let the coin just fall all the way through with the tape and the string and then just walk away and then just do it again on the next time. And, and no one would ever know. They, I mean, no, no one would know who did it. It's just, yep. uh, they might open up the machine one day and be like, oh man, someone did this. There's a coin with know. a string now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we did all sorts of uh, crazy things. <laughs> I heard another similar... I mean, I've known about the quarter on a string trick from even, like, cartoons and other old shows, but uh, I was told by my friends in Japan that one thing that was common also in the 90s was you would take a 10-yen coin... So you'd get, like, a roll of 10-yen coins, right? Which is about a dime. And yeah. you would do is you would wrap them in tape. Then you'd cut them back into just the individual 10-yen coins. Yeah. And the arcade cabinet register as 100 yen. Yeah. Uh-huh. There was definitely, like, uh, people, like, when arcades switched to tokens, the tokens were kind of hexagonal and a different size so that they could be registered in a weird way. And people would take pennies and like chisel them to like make them the same size as tokens and everything. Oh my God. And, and throw them in there. Yeah. There, dude, we were kids back then. We were trying to find every way to cheat the system as much as possible. <laughs> And here I am, you know, you know, going through the dark arcade, reaching my hand underneath the machines or into the coin, you know, the coin slot. See yeah. if anyone left a token <laughs> or dropped something. And yeah, uh, I remember doing that. Cone in the chat mentioned that some machines actually were had built-in string choppers, and that was actually true. That like when it hit the switch, like a, a blade would come across the top just to make sure that the strings would get cut like that had to be uh. something in the future but one thing i do want to mention about my friend you know who was doing the string trick um uh his name is eric uh i mean you can't bust him now it's way too late uh he's uh he's uh like i said he was one of the best in uh mortal kombat 2 he actually legit got pong combat on mortal kombat 2 which you had to get like 250 wins or something like that i remember hearing that it was that it was it was somewhere from like 50 to 200 but you got like bonus games or something when you did that in mortal yeah. kombat yeah and 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 then uh so yeah he was actually 
actually, he actually legit got the Pong combat, and they were both like, what the hell? And then, uh, also true story, going back to something you wanted to ask about before, uh, he was at a castle park one time, which is one of those mini golf arcade places, and he was beating everybody in Mortal Kombat. And uh, a guy walked up to him and opened his coat, and it was either a knife or a gun or something. And the guy was like, I'm winning the next game, right? And Eric was like, yep. And then he, like, he lost and then just walked away and left the arcade, and that was it. <laughs> yep. Man, I, I also completely believe that story because I, I've heard way too many of these stories. And I'm like, you know, they, these have to be, at least some of these have to be real. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I've never had anything that bad. I think the worst was uh, when Super Street Fighter 2 first came out. The very first place I managed to play it was at a 7-Eleven. And I was so excited for this new version because it had T-Hawk and all these other crazy characters. And I was like, whoa. And like we were just being amazed at all the crazy new things that were happening. I was laughing like, oh my God, this is crazy. And I was using Zangief and I fought a Guile. And I did Lariat, and he tried to flash kick me, and I hit the Lariat with the flash kick. And I was like, what the hell? I've never seen that. And I was laughing about it. And after I beat the guy, the guy just, like, smacks me in the back of the head. And he's like, stop laughing. And he, like, storms out of the arcade. Salty. Yeah, and I was like, oh, my God. I was, like, terrified, dude, because I was a high school kid at that time. And this was, like, a a big older dude. And he just, like, totally smacked me in the back of the head and just walked away, dude. And I was, like, terrified. I think that, that was always the scariest thing. It's like, you know, you're there as a kid or you got, you know, that, you know, the youthful enthusiasm or, you know, you know you're naive or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is a game. And all of a sudden you play some older person and they get genuinely angry. Like, <laughs> oh, no. Don't like losing the kids, man. Look, I know how that feels now, okay? <laughs> That's why I hit you in the back of the head that one time, Court. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I remember, man. I still have scars, man. You want me to see? That's why you grow the hair out because you need to block it, right? You need to hide the scar that I gave you. It's that that's exactly correct. Um, So when I was a kid, um, my my earliest arcade experience was also coincidentally my same fighting game experience. I was either two or three, somewhere in that time range. It was either ninety-seven or ninety-eight years old. Uh, so specifically, it was I went to a hockey game with my dad. Okay. And there was an arcade cabinet there, and as a kid, uh, my only memory was it was a fighting game. I was playing as Captain America, and <laughs> the stage was an oil refinery. Okay, okay. I went back and I, I remembered all those things specifically, and I was like, okay, it had Captain America, therefore it had to be like Marvel superheroes <laughs> or Marvel Street Fighter, you know, something like that. And but the oil refinery stage I looked up it was only in two games. It was an X Men versus Street Fighter and Marvel Super Heroes versus Street Fighter. Oh, okay. So okay. I now know that the very first fighting game I ever played was Marvel Super Heroes versus Street Fighter. Oh, okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> nice. And I I don't really remember much. I just remember my dad lifted me up so I could reach the controls, like so, so I could play it, and that was really about it. <laughs> Dude, that's why we loved that Aladdin's Castle in the Redlands Mall. They always had two stools like little stools that you could stand on. And so I was just this kid, and as soon as I run into the arcade, there had better not have been any other kids using him because as soon as I 
I would run around till I found one of them, pick it up, and then I was just this little kid that ran around with the stool the entire time. Like, I would never let go of this thing. And I, I was that kid, too, that, like, I I used to be one of those spectacles because... I would play Dragon's Lair, and I'm this tiny little kid standing on a stool playing Dragon's Lair, and I would do the cocky thing where they give you five lives, and I'd beat the game by never dying until I got to the last move and then purposely dying, and then doing the last stage and doing the whole thing until the last move and purposely dying, and then doing that all the way until the last life and then finishing it just to get the highest score maximally possible. And I'm mm-hmm. this little kid that was doing that. And, and I don't know if people also know this. This is not fighting games. But Super Mario Brothers in the arcade is about five times harder than Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo. It is infinitely harder. And a lot of the stages that were super hard got put into the lost levels. And so there mm. was some of those crazy stages that didn't make it onto the home one. Because I just don't think they had enough RAM for it or something like that. Or... But there was the arcade one was infinitely harder than the home version. And I beat that in the arcade as well. Like even on World 4, the farthest you could warp to was 5. You could not warp to 8 from 4 to 8 like you can on the home version. 4 to 5 was the max you could warp to. And so from 5 all the way on was like just the most ridiculously difficult levels. And I still remember playing Super Mario Brothers. I was this little kid and I had this crowd of like 15 people around me all like, oh my God, this kid is trying to beat this game. And I got to my last life. And I don't know if you remember the end of Super Mario Brothers. There's one Hammer Brother before this giant lava pit before Bowser and an axe. I got there, I had like 15 seconds left on the clock, it was my last life, I was Big Mario, and I was like, I can't try to kill this Hammer Brother carefully. So I just ran into him, shrunk, jumped the fire pit, and just made a beeline right for the axe, and right when I got to Bowser, he happened to jump. (laughs) And I made it right under him, hit the axe, and I beat the game, and I still remember the whole arcade just going, ah, like they were all so hype about that, and... It was crazy. And again, I was just this little... I mean, this was 85. This was like 84, 85. I was in fourth grade, maybe third grade at the time. And I was beating this game in the arcade, which most people couldn't beat. And so it was just like this crazy... Like everybody was watching. It was it was really, really fun. <laughs> that, that, that was like the golden age of arcades. And that that's actually the one thing I miss the most about arcades. You know, back when arcades were popping, where everyone would mm-hmm. go there to play is you'd get crowd of people you know watching you yes. know like, like you'd see people like on twitch now watching people on twitch or maybe you had an older sibling you'd watch them play at home but no in the arcade you'd have people just crowding up wanting to watch oh yeah sometimes you just want to <laughs> dude that's watch. actually one of my favorite things about the arxis lobby system that they have you know when we're playing grand blue fantasy and uh, when we were playing Grand Blue Fantasy uh, on my stream a while ago, I just had a lobby open for people to practice and everything, uh, for beginners to practice. And everybody was spectating one match. And in the lobby graphic, there's like seven people huddling around an arcade machine. And like that actually like brought back the nostalgia feels for me so badly when I saw that. I was like, dude, that's exactly how it was in the arcade. <laughs> 
Oh man, dude, I, I miss those. I uh, and that was like once again, that was the crazy part is you know you'd have you know the you have people crowding on watching a competitive game. You'd have people crowding on watch just watching someone be like a beast at like Super Mario Brothers. Dragon maybe they're Slayer, playing DDR. Yeah. Maybe they're playing like House of the Dead or something. That was so cool. Yeah, I was about to bring this up too, but Cone mentions it up there. Uh, it actually caused the problem in some arcades, and so some arcades actually would do that thing where they'd put a, sec a second monitor that repeated the, gr the, the footage on the top of the cabinet. And so people from around could just watch up there. And that actually happened a lot more with Street Fighter 2 because it became such a spectator thing that a lot of the Street Fighter 2 cabinets would have the monitors on top just so people could watch and not crowd around a cabinet and cause people problems. That is so cool. I never knew about that. Yeah. <laughs> I never knew about them putting another monitor or mm -hmm. like, you know, display. So people, that is so cool. Yep. <laughs> like you and stupid saying he had a small group watch me whack dudes in initial D. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing is it's, it's so cool. And that's why for me, uh, games done quick is one of my favorite things because that's what it is. People have always enjoyed watching other people be good at video games. It's always been a thing, which is why it's not surprising to me that Twitch took off instead of just generic Justin TV, that it took off for video games because watching other people be good at video games is just one of the most enjoyable things to do. And Games Done Quick is like the ultimate celebration of that. And then tournaments are another way to celebrate that. So, I mean, look, video games started with Pong, right? Pong was the very first arcade game. It wasn't the first video game. It was the very first arcade game. And that was a versus game. And, you know, uh, the story was that, you know, they made Pong. The guy put it in a bar just to see how it would do. And then, like, a few hours later, the, the guy called and was like, your machine is broken. And he it's was cool. like, what? And so he went over there to go and check out, and it was broken because it was too full of quarters. It had gotten overstuffed with quarters, and so it couldn't take any more money. And that's why it, it died, because that's how popular it was. And that's just kind of how it went from there. And it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Pong obviously itself was also a huge sensation. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, that game was, uh, although I, I was not around during the time when uh, uh, Pong was in the arcades and stuff, uh, I, I definitely have read a lot about it and just how popular it was. And, you know, they've, they even had to like fix bugs in it and stuff because there were bugs that there were some balls that you couldn't even reach and that were unreturnable. <laughs> mm -hmm, so they had mm -hmm, to fix mm -hmm. that. <laughs> the, the early days of video games, man. Yeah. And that was so cool. Um, so, okay, so your first arcade game, or your, your first, it was Starhawk, Aladdin's Castle. You, play, you played World Warrior when it came out. Mm -hmm. um, when you, so UCLA, because that's where you played uh, World Warrior. Yeah. So just, just to you... add on to that little bit of a story is that after we found it at my local arcade, every spring break from that point forward for all four years of my high school, I went and lived with my brother in his apartment just so I could go hang out in the UCLA arcade for that whole week while he was in classes. And I would just sit there and play Street Fighter 2 all day. So <laughs> Damn. that's where I got my Street Fighter 2 kind of indoctrination. <laughs> that's where you got your stripes, dude. Yep, exactly. Um, 
the question I had was, in, even back in that time, I don't remember, or I don't know if you remember, um, how many cabinets were there for Street Fighter 2, like, in that <laughs> one arcade? Like, okay. was it just one? So, two things. Uh, one, let me, let me get, let me, I just want to answer this question from Atomic Number in the chat where he says that, you know, one of my friends is really crazy good in Tetris and she said it's because of the arcades. Lots of women gravitated over puzzle games like Tetris and Bubble Bobble. What a lot of people don't realize is that arcade games were never a guy thing. They were everybody. Like, back in the days, they advertised it to men and women. Uh, more women played Pac-Man than men statistically. I heard it was like 60% women and 40% men and everything. It was only once it started all of a sudden gearing towards this weird thing where, you know, it became about like, oh, let's put, you know, here's these violent games and here's the scantily clad women and da da da. And they started marketing it towards guys that it kind of changed. It was weird. So, but video games were not always a guy thing. Uh, girls loved video games uh, when, it fir when they all first came out. There was tons of girls in the arcades and they just... Uh, I mean, that's why when games like Puzzle Bobble and, and stuff like that come out, you know, there are a lot of women who play them. Uh, my, my mother, actually, um, she would tell me stories about in the late 70s, early 80s when she was a high schooler, she would play a lot of Pac-Man and Galaga and Galaxian. Mm -hmm. She loved those Namco games. Yeah. And funny enough, there was one game she actually taught me how to play growing up. Like, as in, like, she's really, really good at okay. it. That was Dr. Mario. She loved puzzle <laughs> games. She taught me how to play T Tetris, Dr. Mario, and Puyo Puyo. She taught me how to play those puzzle games when I was growing up as a kid. Oh, nice. Oh, okay, so your mom, you should introduce your mom to the classic Tetris World Championships. <laughs> she might be interested in things. I think she's primarily a Dr. Mario player. Okay, so, okay. Fair yeah. enough, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but still, no, she, she, she'd appreciate it. Um... No, to, to answer your question, though, and this is a really interesting anecdote, anecdote as well, is that one of the nice things about UCLA is they actually hooked up head-to-head -head cabinets as well. So that way people had more space to play. But the thing about it is you would walk into the arcade and there was always, you know, the arcades along the walls. And then there would always just be rows of arcades in the middle of the floor, right, on both sides, back to back. Well, mm -hmm. at the UCLA arcade, during its prime for Street Fighter II, there were probably six to seven back-to-back -back cabinets, head-to-head. -head. So there was literally 14, like 12 maybe cabinets dedicated to Street Fighter II for six boards so people could play head-to-head. -head. And they were all jam-packed. So uh, by the time I got to my senior year at UCLA, I worked at the UCLA Arcade. Uh, I was I was staffed there. I was just one of the guys who worked there. And the guy who was the manager was the same guy who had been running it that entire time. Uh, uh -huh. I knew him. He still him and his brother. His name is Eric Chang. Different Eric. Uh, Eric Chang and his brothers Harrison Chang. I just saw Harrison at Super Arcade like last year before it closed. You know they've still been working on this the, the, all this arcade stuff. And uh, Eric was, was the manager at the UCLA Arcade, and Monday mornings was collection. We would always have to go there an hour before the arcade open, open all the cabinets, pull all the buckets out of them, pour all the quarters into a change counting machine, and then they would do the bookkeeping from there. So we would mm -hmm. know how much the arcade made during the week. And uh, we did that, like I said, every Monday. He told me that during Street Fighter II's Prime, when they had those six back-to-back head-to-head cabinets. So there not only was it, you know, six machines being played, but the coins were going in on both sides. 
they still had to do, and it was the only time that they had to do collections twice a week. Otherwise, the coins would just start falling out of the bucket onto the floor and onto the sides. So they just had to do an extra collection on Wednesday just to make sure, or I think it was Thursday, just to make sure that the cabinets didn't overflow in quarters. So that, that is an indication that regardless of how many machines you put in there, they were all being played like constantly. It was crazy. The cabs are jam-packed. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was ta I've been talking to David about this too, you know, because, you know, I always talk about how great Tomo was back in the day, you know, the legend Tomo and everything. And David, you know, he's right. Through statistics, Tomo statistically probably isn't that great by today's standards because, you know, we have more people playing and you just have a better chance of finding guys like Punk and, you know, and, and these kind of players. More but, information, yeah. But ha, ha. I, I, like Tomo was a, like he was like a prodigy kind of. And if he had the resources today, he would be one of the best. You know, like if he had today's resources, I do think he would be one of the best. And uh, where was I going with the story? Holy crap. I can't even remember now. Uh, he was... Shoot, I, what were we just talking about? I totally... Uh, coins, uh, I had to collect twice in a week for Street Fighter 2 because it would just be filled up with quarters and people were on the machines 24-7. It was just... Yeah, dude, I totally forgot where I was going with this story now, but... <laughs> What was it about, like, how he would spend very little money in comparison because he'd, he'd never lose? Or... Yeah, I mean, he he just beat everybody. And, you know, I, I honestly thought, oh, that's where I was going with this. Right. Um, you know, because David says that, you know, the, the, the number of players playing today is so much significantly more. But the thing about it is, if you weren't around back in the days of Street Fighter 2, I'm not even sure that that's necessarily true. Because everybody played Street Fighter 2. Everybody, like if you went to a random video store and they had a cabinet by the end of Street Fighter 2's life cycle, people were there who knew how to play at the highest levels. And people were playing at this level everywhere because you literally couldn't play the game unless you were that good. Because everywhere you went, there was no like, hey, I'm going to go fight the other low ranked people. You went to an arcade there or a video store or a 7-Eleven. There was only the one cabinet. And if you didn't know how to play at that level, you didn't play. Like, you would just Every go machine had a killer. Yeah. Every, every cab had a killer on it. And that's how many people were playing the game. I really feel like I can legitimately say that, you know, Tomo is that special of a video game player because there were that many people playing and he beat people in NorCal, SoCal, which are going to have the highest concentration of that high-level players. I mean, Graham Wolf, you know, uh, Alex Wolf, Jason Nelson, even, you know, Seth Killian, Tom Cannon, Tony Cannon, you know, all these, John Choi, all these guys were playing, Mike Watson, you know, were all playing back then. And these guys are all ridiculously good, even still by today's standard. I mean, you look at Vi, and he's winning you know, Wednesday night fights and he's not even playing it as seriously as he, he used to, you know, if, if it was like back in the day, I mean, back in the day, Vi would walk into an arcade with his buddies and then he would just play in the tournament, take the money and walk away. And he'd be like, see you guys <laughs> later. You know, it was like a given that he was going to win. And, uh, even today without, you know, taking it as serious, obviously he's dedicated a lot more of his time to, 
TOing and organizing and he's still showing all these, you know, kids how to play. <laughs> you know, he's still the one that created Shizza, you know, RIP to Shizza, rest in peace to Shizza. But, you know, Shizza got top eight at Evo, you know, these players like Chris T, when he first showed up to Wednesday Night Fights, he wasn't good at fighting games. And then Vi helped him learn. He used the one who taught, you know, Andy OCR and Tatsu and Warrock how to play and Snake Eyes. He used the one who turned Snake Eyes into the beast that he is, you know, Vi did a lot of the work. Hello, hello. Oh, uh, oh yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about, you know, because that's, that's the other thing, right? We were talking about it's getting good at Street Fighter 2 at that time was very difficult because there's so many other good players. And once again, you, you were limited by either how good you were or how much money you had. So getting good over time and just getting your ass beat over and over again was so much tougher back then. <laughs> yeah. If, like, I mean, you, I, I, for, you play a lot of music games. You do, right? You play a lot of rhythm games. I play, right? I play a handhold. I, I play, I play a, ha uh, a hand, uh, handful of uh, rhythm games. Okay, yeah. okay. Because you know how, like, at most round ones in arcades, you'll go there and... There's always the hardcore cabinet for DDR, but then there's like the older DDR where all the people are playing singles and you know like the 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 the, the basic steps and everything like that. Casually, yeah, the, yeah. the casual machine, so to speak. That's kind of how fighting games are now. Uh, that were back then. If if an arcade had multiple machines, one of them would always be the scrub cabinet, and the other one would always be the serious cabinet. Uh, at UCLA Arcade during Alpha 1 and on, uh, Alpha 1 is probably when I first started becoming actually like one of the better people at UCLA. When I first got there, it was Super Turbo, and that was when I was playing Cami because I was a low-tier hero or whatever like that. And then uh, Alpha 1 is when I first started actually becoming legit, like competitive and good. And I would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the best player at the UCLA Arcade, this guy named Dean really super tall, amazing guile player, Asian dude. And he was super good. He never played in tournaments, which always made me sad, but he was super good. But every time me and Dean would come up to a machine and start playing, everyone would pick up their tokens and go away. Like they would go to the other machine. Like, like oh no, this is, this is a war zone. We're not playing at this machine. Yeah. Yeah. They, they just, they had nothing. They were like, well, we can't win against either of these guys. So they just went to the other machine. So <laughs> Was there ever, like, I know you're mentioning, that, oh, like, there was the, 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 the scrub or the beginner cabinet, and then this mm -hmm. is, like, the pro cabinet. Was there actually ever, like, an official, like, maybe, like, an arcade operator put a sign saying this is for casual play or this one's for lower level play? Was there anything ever like that? Huh, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think it always just kind of happened naturally. I think just the, because like there was always one cabinet that was either the one that was best maintained or it was the one that was on the 33 inch TV. And that was the one that everybody wanted to play on. And so the best players would play on that. And then if it was just a regular size cabinet, then that's where like the, the, peop, the, 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 the beginners would end up. Because all the top players wanted to play on, on, the, on the big nice screen where you could sit down and have plenty of space, you know, from your opponent. And uh, that, that actually reminds me of my next point which is you know let's let's talk about the arcade cabinets you know, okay, let's talk on. about one second the arcade investigation medium. cone asks in the chat what was the new york scene like in world warrior times i actually don't know so that's something that i would have to pull like uh, arturo 
on here to see if even he knows, uh, like from talking to Eddie Lee and, you know, some of the other old school New York guys. So unfortunately, I don't know the answer to that one. But yeah, uh, what were you saying about the arcade cabinet? Sorry. So, about, no, no, you're good. Uh, the, ar the arcade cabinets, you know, so this is something that, th this is actually a po point a friend brought up to me and I found it fascinating. You know, things that you take for granted now or things that you wouldn't even consider being different now compared to then uh -huh. was you on, on a standard size cabinet in the States, you know, they would put two players on one cabinet. So you're squished together <laughs> trying to play on this one cabinet. Yep. And I didn't realize until I saw my two friends play KI, like old school KI on a cabinet that, there was actually a reason to pick one player or the two player side. Like maybe some person actually felt more comfortable playing on that side because you had mm -hmm. to angle your body differently yep. to get in there. <laughs> yeah. And then also doing uppercuts on one side or the other was a thing. Everybody had a preferential side of which side to uppercut on because you just weren't good at it on one direction or the other. And, you know, people, because you had to play next to each other, I mean, there's all the crazy stories of, like, not showering the day before a tournament, you know, just to, to smell as gross as possible, to throw people off. Mike Watson has told the story about eating a gigantic bean burrito before a tournament, and so then he would just hold in the fart until right before the match <laughs> and just let it go right before they started playing, you know, uh... Like, honestly, these were things that they did. And, you know, uh, it was interesting, too, because you could you didn't realize it at first. I'm sure a lot of other people started the better players started realizing it. But because you were so close and most of the time you were literally touching arm to arm while you were playing them, you could feel when they were going to do things. And that's why we all had to learn fakes. That's why we had to learn quarter circle forward with light kick with the Shodos. Because that was how we faked fireballs. Because you could feel the other guy moving to do a fireball. And so you would instinctively jump based off of feeling them kind of move their arm. Not, and not realize it. You just felt like you were predicting it. And so people actually had to start doing quarter circle forward plus light kick to make Ryugo, you know, just whiff the light kick. And that got people to jump. And then you could uppercut them. You know, there, there was just these... There were so many arcade tactics that we had to use that people don't even have to think about these days <laughs> and that's that's the thing i find the most fascinating you because know, you know it, what came up again recently uh, i think it might have been a scrub quote thing someone talking about how like listening to buttons is cheap you know yeah. listening to what buttons your opponent is pressing is cheap and i'm like man if you thought that was cheap you know back in the day it was more that you could feel them pressing buttons yeah you could see them right next to you pressing buttons exactly you could shake the cabinet and mess up their inputs if you really wanted to dude that's 100 percent, 100 percent. i mean uh i won a tournament that way because someone was trying to do a custom combo on me that required timing that was just like button 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 and so i went button 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 just to kind of mess up the rhythm and he dropped the custom combo <laughs> and like that was a thing that you did Th those were strats and you know it's funny because vi actually like took some of those strats into even street fighter 4 when we were playing on joysticks but you know at super arcade we were still sitting next to each other i tell the story all the time on stream the reason why Vi could land so many jump fierces on people is because Ryu had that cross-up Tatsu. You know, you could jump, spin, kick Tatsu, and he would go behind their head and kick them. And what he would actually do is spin, kick, plus fierce, 
which didn't re- result in anything except for a jump fierce. But a lot of the people who weren't used to the arcade times would react to seeing out of the corner of their eye Vi's arm going like this with the spin kick motion. And they would think that the Tatsu's coming. And they didn't even realize that was happening. But Vi could take advantage of him because he had the arcade experience to do that. So he would jump to spin kick fierce. You would walk forward to block the Tatsu and then you would just walk right into his jump fierce. But, you know, it wasn't like Vi was trying to count on a 50-50 mix-up. He was literally doing the quarter circle back to subconsciously trick the opponent. You know, these... He was conditioning them. And, and, and uh, man, if you, if you think about it, that sounds like a scummy tactic, but that worked. <laughs> that worked. Dude, and, and the funny thing is, when you're back from that time, you're so used to it that it... Yeah, like, nowadays, everyone's like, that's dirty, we should play, you can't see him, and, like... For me, that's just like part of the game. That's just what you do. <laughs> so, so I do find that fascinating. Um, h- how different American, or I guess Western versus Asian uh, arcade culture was. Because in Japan, for example, the majority of cabinets were head to head. Yes. And so you you generally was you wouldn't be able to see your opponent's buttons, or you wouldn't be able to know what's going on. You wouldn't even be able to hear them because they're in that, the exact opposite mm-hmm. side. There's two cabinets in between you and you have a cacophony of other noises going on around the arcade. You wouldn't be able to hear their buttons. Right. Yeah. It, so, it... yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, oh no, no. It's just, just that, that, that was, that's so fascinating because I, I, when I was growing up, I actually moved to Japan when I was three years old and I lived there for three years. So my, my majority of my arcade experience was in Japan. And so that was completely different. Yeah. And so I, I, real, I didn't realize until I became an adult how much I didn't understand the American arcade experience because I <laughs> wasn't there in its right. heyday. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. My, my whole idea of what Street Fighter 2 was like in Japan arcades comes from high score girl, to be honest with you. You know, that's, that's the best I can get because I never got to experience that. And um, uh, Muffin Man says in the chat about, yeah, there was a match where... Uh, someone shook the cabinet so hard that uh, someone dropped a parry that would have won them the tournament. <laughs> oh, uh, damn. And uh, damn. and it's funny, too, because Shin Baxter mentions that he would do an elaborate double super motion and then walk up and throw. And uh, my best friend, uh, who I still you know talk to all the time today, uh, you know, one of my best friends, I should say, uh, he noticed that every time I was not going to uppercut on Wake Up, I would... B- be really emphatic about it. And every time I did actually uppercut, I would try to stay as still as possible. And so I, I, gave, I created a reverse tell. So like people, if they saw me do this, they knew I would be faking the uppercut. And so I had to like break my fake, you know? It was, it was really interesting. Um, and then there was another tactic that I used uh, on Street Fighter Three. This is probably one of my favorite tactics of all time. Uh, reuse Denjin Hadouken. You would knock someone down, you go charge it up, and the guy would just be ready for it, and then parry, 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 try to parry it because Denjin Hadouken wasn't parry, it was unblockable, right? It was an unblockable uh, super. So I would always activate it with the jab button, with the light punch button, because then the buttons and the joystick were close enough that I would slide my thumb over from my joystick onto the light punch button, and then I would let go like this. Very emphatically let go, but I'm still holding the button down with my thumb over here. 
and players got used to reacting to Denjin by by body language. So I would let go of this. They would try to parry and be like, what? And then I'd let go with my thumb and hit them. Like... <laughs> They, they would already be just tapping forward. They might dash into you and they're like, yeah. oh, well. Well, they just tap forward one time and they don't see anything happen. They're like, wait, what's happening? And then I just let go with this one and then they'd get hit. So, I mean, these were things that you did. And, and like, nobody thought that was cheating. That was, like, you'd see that. And I remember the first time I did that to somebody and someone saw it, they were like, yo, that was sick. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, they loved it, dude. They thought that that, would, that was amazing, you know. I, I, I think that's a genuine outplay of like, hey, I saw that you were trying to react to my body language, so I fooled you. Yep. Like, I, I don't think there's anything unfair about that. See, that's why I brought you on, Corey. No, <laughs> oh, man. No, that's, that's one of my favorite stories. And I, I feel bad because it's technically Valle's story to tell or just one of his tactics he told me about that I found so fascinating was well, I think it was in uh, the alpha games. I don't know which alpha games, but you know you had you had the fake fireball with taunt. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So in, in, in those games, you could do a fake fireball by doing core circle forward and the start button. You know, player one start, mm -hmm. player one or player two start, player two. Um, and Ryu would just do the motion, then nothing would come out, and he just instantly recover pretty right. much. But the thing about that is, in those cabinets, the start buttons are in the middle. They're, they're, they're not near your your set of buttons. It's like all the way out here. And yeah. so the opponent could very clearly see you press the button. So Vi created, he's like, so no one used the fake fireball because it was way too obvious when you're going to use it. But then Vi did a reverse tell thing where he told me what he would actually do is he'd do core circle forward, reach for the start button, and then with his other hand on the joystick, then reach over and press jab <laughs> and get a real fireball out. <laughs> And I was like, that is so cool it, that you would do a one-handed fireball because you're trying to fake the opponent out of thinking you're doing a fake fireball. <laughs> and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. It was really weird because every cabinet had the start button in a different place, too. So sometimes you couldn't use the tactic even if you wanted to because the start button was just in the most random-ass location. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I would do... I could only do this on the first player side. If the start button was close enough, I would always, I used Cody. He had the fake fireball as well. He would reach down, grab a rock and do nothing in Alpha mm. 3. He would go, ha ha, fake rock, ha ha, ha ha, and do nothing. And it was super good. It was super fast. And the way I did it in the arcade is I would always hit the start button with the tip of my fingers over here, but I'd have my thumb extended over here, which could still hit the punches. So every time I did it, I would do this, and whether I was hitting the start button or hitting the punch button, I would mask it by keeping my hand in that shape like this and just lean like it a in a different shape. way. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. so that's, that's kind of my version of the Vi tactic. <laughs> so, so yeah, unless the opponent was looking very, very, very close attention, paying very close attention to how your hand was exactly moving in the middle of a match, right. they wouldn't know what you actually did. <laughs> exactly. Wow. But like I said, these are just all the old school tactics, man. These are things that you did. This is this is the way it just worked. <laughs> and, and the thing is, but that's what I find so fascinating because obviously you, that 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 stuff doesn't come into play anymore because you don't share a control console yeah. with your opponent. You're not sitting. You're not standing there. You know, elbow to elbow. 
And, like, when I hear about those things, I just think that's genuinely cool because, once again, th those aren't really documented. Mm -hmm. And you would never think about that because that th that's not relevant to how those games are played today. Yeah. And, and that's why I, I even kind of... Uh, it's interesting because I'm always preferential for tournaments to have side-by-side -side grand finals, one monitor, you know, so you could feel the opponent and kind of thing. But I realize mm. that that's actually a pretty selfish... Uh, you know, desire, because I was like, that's how it was in the back, in the arcades, and blah, blah, blah. But like you mentioned earlier, that's not even how it was like in Japan, <laughs> yeah. right? And so it's a very uh, American-specific kind of setup. And even when I was at UCLA, like I said, they had a lot of head-to-head -head cabinets, so we didn't even have to do it then either. But, you know, it was just something that I'm so accustomed to that I feel is so normal to me. Yeah, I mean, once people pointed that out to me, I could understand why it was kind of selfish and why, you know, it's it's a very, like, I'm being, I'm there there I am being old man, cane waving, when I was a kid, I did that, you know, kind of thing like that. But, you know, I still prefer it because I, I feel like feeling your opponent and seeing their expressions and feeling their frustrations and stuff is a huge part of the game because... A uh, lot of, I, I'm very fascinated by that aspect of fighting games, of, of the competitive human nature, emotional aspect of things. Uh, I've always pointed out that, you know, when Ricky is playing against somebody, again, Ricky from the arcade scene, so she's very used to this, but between matches, whenever the camera on streams go back to the players between matches, you'll almost always see Ricky not turning her body, but her eyes are slight, like her head is very slightly turned and her eyes are looking at her opponent. She's always trying to assess their mood, you know, because if you see the other person going, oh, God, oh, then you know it's time to go in for the kill. If they look really calm or they try to shake their head, they're like, oh, okay, they think they figured something out. I'm going to change my strategy completely. You know, there's a lot of these little tells that you don't realize that you're giving uh, when, when you're not used to the arcades. Because when you play at home, you just do whatever you want. You scream, nobody sees it. But when mm -hmm. you're playing live, you can get a lot of information about people that way. And so every time Ricky's on on stream i always comment about how i love watching how she looks at her opponents in between matches to kind of assess their mood and i i like that aspect i like making fighting games as human as possible which is why i like execution which is why i like making things droppable you know because a lot of people are like fighting games are supposed to be about mind games we shouldn't have to worry about execution and i completely disagree because i want that human aspect you know if jordan could sh if, if steph curry oh, I, mean, I guess he can make a three every time he shoots it but you know if someone made a three every time they shot it because they were open it would be boring the excitement comes when he shoots it and you're wondering if it's gonna go in so a lot of times when someone lands that kill combo there's still always that chance that they may drop the combo and I think that adds so much to it when combos become undroppable I feel like it's boring that way you know and <clears throat> I I agree um what so it's funny I I like that you point that out like you know Ricky she would do that you know that's a very very human element and that that's something that is you see that that stemmed from her arcade, her previous yes. experiences in the arcades, mm -hmm. of gauging your opponent, 
seeing what their mental state is like and re understanding okay did they adapt do i need to adapt to something they're about to do do i change it up do i do i throw a wrench in their plans that's always exciting and the the other fact you make i'm sorry to make a aside here you know that was a video Corey gaming did a few years ago uh -huh. talking about you know fighting game difficulty and one of their examples used was like yeah you know you have like two players you know like daigo and Valle. you know they both mm -hmm. played ryu but they both played him differently. One uh, what did combos that did more damage but were harder to execute, while the other just went for the consistent, this combo will always work and I have no trouble yeah, executing yeah, yeah. it. And, you know, th they were both valid tactics just because the game has the capability of being harder, mm -hmm. having a higher skill ceiling, yeah. doesn't mean you need to always play a specific way in order to be good yeah it, it's a tough situation because that's something that uh, I used to have trouble with back in the Street Fighter 4 days when people used to complain about one frame links uh, I totally get it one frame links are kind of stupid and I, I'm not the biggest fan of them which is why I always like plinking because I actually felt two frame links was kind of fair uh, more than one frame links uh, I like two and three frame links yeah and, uh, but, you know, one of the hardest things about streaming and uh, about video games in general, I mean, when you played in the arcade, you couldn't really hide when you lost and, and, and things like that. And like Vi was talking about the walk of shame and, you know, uh, he was even mentioning in the chat that like, you know, when the regulars at an arcade would always be dicks to like the, the, the new person that showed up, you know, because they just wanted to, you know, assert their dominance of the arcade. That's what it was back in the day was asserting your arcades dominance. Basically that was mm -hmm. the whole competition back then. But, you know, as a result, you know, uh, a lot of times when, uh, people are playing, uh, what was the last thing you just said? Shoot, I distracted myself again. Oh, the, my last point, which was uh, talking about uh, difficulty in fighting games and how you don't need to have the highest level execution. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's players. right. Yeah, and one of the things about video games is that video games, you know, video games are designed to trick you into thinking you're good at video games, you know. Uh, you always get more powerful, you'll get more health, you get more moves, and, you know, games, like, I always tell the story that how in the original God of War, uh, every time you died and reloaded, you got one more pixel of health, and uh, you d actually never could tell. But if you died at something over and over and over and over again, eventually you would have a full health bar. Like, that I was... I never knew that. Yeah, there's a lot of games that... Uh, do a lot of small things like that. So video games are designed to make you think you're good. And so when people started watching fighting games on stream, before it really got to as big as it was, everyone thought like, well, I'm obviously good at video games. I should be able to do everything too. And so my biggest complaint was like, you know, people would get mad because they couldn't do Rufus dive kick, light kick, one frame link heavy punch into galactic tornado, heavy galactic tornado. And I would tell people, I was like, who cares? Do dive kick, low short, jab tornado. That's a combo. And mm. they're like, but it doesn't do as much damage. And Justin does that. I'm like, yeah, but you don't watch LeBron James like charge down and dunk over two people and go, well, I'm, you know, I should be able to do that. Because for some reason, when you watch a sport, you just naturally assume these guys are better than you athletically. But for video games, everyone feels like they're supposed to be able to do everything right away. And it's, you know, it's, I've always tried to teach people that you should not aim for that right away. Do the easy thing first and worry about the hardest things later, you know, and, 
And, you know, people wanted to adapt to the strongest a little bit too quickly. And that, that was actually a problem during the Street Fighter 4 era. I think it's different now. I think people have a better understanding of how the good players, how good they are at fighting games. So I don't see people going like, I could beat Sonic Fox. Like, you don't see that as much as you... you I mean, back in the days on the Shoryuken forums, I used to have people, you know, message me all the time. They'd be like, I could beat John Choi and Alex Vi. And I was like, you, you really couldn't. <laughs> and they were like... Well, what if I came and I did? And I would be like, then I would congratulate you. Come and do it. Be my guest. Be my guest. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, that's what it was like back then. But nowadays, I feel like because esports are being taken kind of seriously now that we don't have that kind of situation. But it was definitely a problem during the Street Fighter Four era where everybody just wanted to be able to do everything at the highest levels right away. It was kind of interesting one of the things uh, I learned, like one of the lessons I learned throughout my fighting game history. Also, I'm sorry we're going on this tangent specifically into like more modern fighting oh, games arcade history. <laughs> so but... remember, Street Fighter Four players are veterans now. Remember? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was uh, finding your niche. Um, so there, there was one theory. I forget which player it was who said this, saying that most fighting game players are split into three categories. One who has very good execution like you know like physically they yeah, have mm -hmm. good reflexes very fast execution uh the 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 scientist the person who's very cerebral knows all the frame mm -hmm. data knows all the combos you know does all that and then the one who plays by heart the yes. one who makes very good reads and just has a very good idea of what the opponent wants to do yeah. at most times it was yeah. last theory okay thank you very much i'm uh, i'm heil yeah or i'm heil yeah, I, um, I, I, rem I thought it was laugh. I wasn't sure because I I, I've actually stolen that and I've used it a lot in my teachings now because I think it's a really, really good, it's a, it's a really great uh, just concept to, to help people understand the different parts of fighting games. I agree with it. I, I, I very much agree with that, mm -hmm. that, that concept. Um, it, it's, it's, that's what... I realized was I was trying to play characters that had maybe harder combos and I was getting frustrated because my execution or my timing wasn't perfect mm -hmm. and I'd be like but I already know what they want to do it's just my body isn't <laughs> able to perform what I want to do right so then I said wait a second let me try a character that's less execution and more read based and then I started playing grapplers <laughs> And, then, and now, now, now Justin Wong won't ever talk to me again. Wait, less <laughs> execution? I mean, there's SPDs, man. I mean, it took us like a year before we learned how to soup it. No, I was kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess my argument is in, in more modern fighting games, SPDs are hard to do. Yo, you put me in Street Fighter 2 and tell me to play Zangief. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the crazy thing about it, too. Uh, I mean, you know, you see a lot of this nowadays. People in chat who are always saying, like, Street Fighter 4 is so much better than 5. I hate 5 and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the the reason why that dissonance happens, that disconnect, I'm sorry, happens is because Street Fighter 4 is so much more of a heart game and Street Fighter 5 is so much of a mind game. Street Fighter 5 is probably 
one of the biggest mind games. And I don't mean like you play a lot of mind games. It's like that heart, body, mind, you know, the, that concept you're talking about. It's less body, it's less heart, it's more mind. You have to have the game knowledge. Is this plus two? Is this, what is this on this situation? What's the setup off of this? Is this dash after this knockdown real? You know, you have to know all that data. Otherwise, you can't play Street Fighter Five. If you try it's to Excel wing- Excel Spreadsheet Fighter. What's that? It's Excel Spreadsheet Fighter. Yes. And if you try to play Street Fighter V through your heart, through trial and error, you will not find success. In fact, the Chen reaction, this is kind of what I wanted to talk about earlier today, is that my improvement in Street Fighter V recently is coming from understanding that heart is not going to get me to success in this game. And that I have to play the game through mind. And Street Fighter 4 can be more heart-based because you had invincible backdashes, uppercut FADCs, focus attacks, things like that. There was ways just, this feels like the right thing to do, and you could get away with it. Because even if your uppercut FADC was wrong, a lot of times you just backdash and be safe. You know? You, you, you had Hail Mary tactics, uh, way more Hail Mary tactics in mm -hmm. 4. Which, for, for me, like there is a level of frustration of like man i had this guy dead to rights and then he just randomly ultra them wake up or something yeah. like that, and I died. <laughs> uh but then there's also that, that that also felt good of like hey you know i made this comeback because i made the right read right or i just had a good instinct that you're, mm. you're gonna do something and it worked out yeah and it's tough because if you don't understand the science behind Street Fighter V. If you don't understand that interesting Street Fighter V RPS and the idea of trying to put yourself into the RPS in an advantage situation, it's very hard to appreciate that game. And it does feel like it's a random guessing game. And, you know, you do end up with, like a lot of people in the chat are saying that Street Fighter V is the worst. It's, uh, you know, terrible. And Look, I'm not going to argue because everybody has their own tastes. Uh, I had problems with 5, but I'm enjoying it a lot more now because I understand that scientific aspect more and I appreciate the kind of skill and talent that required for that, you know, for that style of game. But as a result, it's why I think uh, players like Justin don't have as much success in Street Fighter V because Justin and Vi... Uh, we're all raised in the heart period of fighting games. That The transition between heart and science was very, very clear when we transitioned from Fudo to Infiltration winning Street Fighter Four at EVO. Previous to that, it's, it was all heart. Heart was the main thing. Infiltration was probably the first real like scientist player to get to that point and start winning. And then Sien won the next year, who's another scientist player. And so we really got this very strong shift between heart and, and, and mind players. And then the way Street Fighter V was designed became even more beneficial to the mind players, which is why in season one, a player like Infiltration was successful, you know, uh, and why players like Justin had a little bit more trouble afterwards because, you know, it was no longer a heart game anymore. And that's where Justin, that is his biggest strength. That's not to say his mind and his body parts aren't, oh God, that sounded completely wrong. It's his mind and his body, <laughs> you know, factors 
aren't also very, very strong as well, but heart is definitely his strength. He's so good at reading what people want to do and what people you know, feel like doing that he was able to take advantage of that so well. And in Street Fighter V, you're, you're going to have more success by being a random kind of player, by having that kind of, you know, hey, I'm going to do this this time. <laughs> it felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. so it's which interesting. Is, is, it's interesting. Yeah. But it's weird because felt like the right thing to do sounds like a heart thing, but like in Street Fighter V, you have to go against your heart and do like it felt like the right thing to do means you shouldn't do it and do the other thing in street fighter five more than any other fighting game it's weird it's a weird kind of uh shift so i mean the things with street fighter five i'm sorry once again we're going this tangent yeah. is is that um street fighter five is very much a numbers based game you need to know the frame mm -hmm, data mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. you need to know oh this is a meaty setup oh this person can jab me and then it doesn't matter if it's it hit me or I blocked it by like plus two or three. They can walk up and throw me. And it's like every single thing leads to like a 50-50 situation. Not yeah. like to, to game, but every single thing leads to a 50-50 situation. You have mm -hmm. to make that split second decision of, all right, do I block or do I do something? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and again, it makes it feel like it's random, but that's why you have to, what I always say is like, that's why you have to tell the story. You always have to tell the story that, and in this situation, I'm always going to throw. And then you change it up when you think they're going to do the thing to counter the throw. You know, there's this little interesting uh, change there. And uh, again, I I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to try to argue that five is better than four or whatever. I, I like all of them. I mean, even uh, someone in the chat saying third strike is like the greatest five. I actually don't even think third strike is that great. Like, I think it's good, it's fun, but it's not my favorite. Like, Super Turbo is the greatest fighting game, Street Fighter fighting game to me, and even I recognize how broken that game is. <laughs> Every but, game is going to have its champions. Yeah. I don't mean, like, their best players, but, like, they, you know, the people who are just going to swear on their life that this is mm -hmm. the game. Yeah, and, and, you know, a lot of the people who sit there and say, you know, Third Strike is clearly the best, I mean, God... <sighs> Like, you haven't had to try to go through that giant swamp of Chun, Yun, and Ken, you know? <laughs> like, at, at EVO, uh, during the 2000s, I did the count one time, and I think between, like, three or four top eights, uh, I think Yun, Chun was, like, half of the top eights in that entire time. Like, Ken was, like, like a third of them. Yun was, like, a good chunk of them. And then there was... Coco Jean one time playing uh, Dudley, Dudley, and then there was KSK one time playing Alex. But it was literally just Chun, Yun, and Ken, Chun, Yun, and Ken, Chun, Yun, and Ken. When we watch it nowadays, people have gotten so good, and a lot of people just won't use Chun because she's boring. And so we see a lot of the cool new Makoto and Yurian and Oro, and we're okay with unblockables now because we know how they need them to be competitive. But man, back in the day, dude, Third Strike, like everybody was mad because all you would see is just Chun all day, and Ken, and Chun, and Ken. And Chun and Chun and Ken, and it was terrible. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I, I need a loop of that of just you saying Chun and Ken, Chun and Ken <laughs> over and over and over again. There you like go. Like it's Groundhog Day. Just, you know, you just keep going the same day over and over again. It's just, you know, Chuns and Kens. Yeah, seriously. Ugh. 
Oh, man. But yes, Third Strike is beautiful animation-wise. For sure, it's one of the best animated games. Had some good music in it, too. I, I, I would argue some of the music, like, the majority of the music is probably not as iconic to me as Street Fighter 2, probably because Street Fighter 2 as a franchise is super <laughs> iconic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing, too, that a lot of people don't realize. You know, going back to that whole comment where I was saying that everybody played the game back then, you know, the penetration that Street Fighter 2 had into the social public consciousness was ne I still think was greater back then than it is now. People, when you talk to them about Street Fighter, they'll all remember Street Fighter 2. You know, there have, every time I travel somewhere and I get a lift from an airport to the venue, guys always like, what are you here for? And I'm in the middle of BFE, right? Like, I'm just like in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, what are you here for? I'm like, oh, video game tournament? They're like, really? What games? And I'm like, Street Fighter 2? And they're like, oh, I remember that. That was the one with, you know, Arukin, you know, everybody remembered Street Fighter 2. It was a G.I. Joe, it was a cartoon, it was a serial, it was everywhere. You could not escape it. They got Jean-Claude Van Damme for the movie and everything. Like, it was everywhere. It, there was another ride that we were in the car with an Uber and like a bunch of us were sitting there and the guy was like, blah, 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 this thing was named Vega. Not, a, not after the Street Fighter 2 character, mind you, but after, you know, Quentin Tarantino films or whatever. We hadn't even mentioned that we were there for Street Fighter at all. That was just, he just said it, you know, and, and we were like, it's comment, funny yeah. that you mentioned that because, <laughs> you know, and no, like everybody knew Street Fighter. My, Parents knew what Street Fighter 2 was. My dad has imitated Chun-Li going, Yata! before, you know, for fun. Like, that is why... And, like, I always also tell the story that my parents owned a video store uh, back when I was growing up. After the restaurant, they owned video stores, and they would eventually rent video games there. And uh, the way that you did that is you went to go buy your VHSs wholesale at VHS distributors, right? And mm -hmm. people didn't know this, but VHS tapes were like $89.99 back in the day. And think about that. When I was in high school, they were $89.99. They didn't believe people wanted to buy movies to own. So they, it was only a rental business. Um, <clears throat> So uh, they would, you'd have to go to these distributor places to buy them at wholesale prices for like $65, right? So that's why you rented a movie for like, you'd have to rent it like uh, 30 some times to be able to get your money back at $2 a rental. Uh, when video games started getting popular during the NES and the SNES and the Genesis era and the NES era, they also started selling video games there. And uh, my parents would always bring us to this wholesale store and we would always be these kids running up to the lady at the counter and be like, do you have this video game for wholesale price? Because we wanted to get them for cheaper. And then the ladies would always be like, what? What are you talking about? We were like, oh, like this game called Blaster Master on the NES, you know, on the Nintendo. And they were like, oh, uh, what was it called? Like, how do you spell that? You know, all these things. When Street mm -hmm. Fighter 2 came out on the Super Nintendo, we ran up to the lady and we're like, hi, do you have Street Fighter 2? She's like, oh no, we've sold out of that long ago. Like, they, they, there was no confusion. They knew exactly what, they were what we were talking about and it was sold out already. You know, I mean, everybody knew about Street Fighter 2. And, and that's the thing is, outside of Pac-Man, even comparatively,
compared to stuff like Mario. Like Mario is a long-term cultural phenomenon. Pac-Man and Street Fighter were the ones that when they came out, they just became this thing that everybody knew about. It was crazy. It was so different. Like even today, if like when you go talk to people who haven't, you know, been interested in video games for a while, you'd be like, hi, I play Street Fighter V. And they're like, they still make that? They made more after two? You know, a lot of people have that response. But that's like I said, because everybody knows about Street Fighter II. So even during that time, I personally still believe more people knew about Street Fighter II then than people know about Street Fighter now with as many people as playing it and we have all these esports and stuff like that. I still think more people knew about it then than they do now. I, I, I agree with you. You know, way more of the general population, like not mm -hmm. even non-gamers, yes. knew what Street Fighter 2 was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it's, it's hard to express to people who didn't grow up and didn't live around that time. I mean, it's not like I was a fighting game fan, so when Street Fighter 2 came out, I was just naturally going to start playing it. It was the first one. It's just when it came out, it was so different and it became this weird competitive thing. And like I said, the arcades would literally, like whenever strangers would come in, you had to beat them to show your arcade was the best. It was about your arcade versus other arcades. And so even if you didn't even know where the, which arcade this guy came from, you just had to make sure you had to send everybody home with their tail between their legs you know, because you wanted to make sure they went home and told whoever they played with, oh my God, these guys were so good, I couldn't do anything to them. And that's, that's just how it was back then. There were no national tournaments or anything like that. It was just, we, people would jump from arcade to arcade and you would want your arcade to be the best one. And, and that's it. What, how, how much times have changed? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, bo both Street Fighter... And uh, I, I don't remember who in the comments mentioned it, but, you know, Mortal Kombat both exploded onto the scene <sighs> and became major cultural pop mm -hmm. icons. Yeah. Everyone still remembers Mortal Kombat as well. I mean, even, even once we started getting on the Internet and we were on AGSF2, uh, Alt Games SF2 on the news groups, you know, even back then we couldn't see everybody play. Not everybody knew how good anybody else was. It was all just assumptions. And I was a birdie player in Alpha 1 at one point in time. And everyone was like, oh, birdie can't beat Guy. And I was like, I definitely can beat Guy with birdie, okay? I could definitely beat him. And one guy responded to me on AGSF2. He's like, well, there's this one player in NorCal who's really, really good with Guy. If you played him, he, you would never beat him. This dude named John Choi. And I was like, dude, I, who, I don't care. I could beat this guy. You know, like, who the hell's a John Choi? Right, exactly. It didn't even matter. Like, nobody, we didn't know. Nobody knew. And that's why Battle by the Bay, uh, which we should probably get into in another episode because that's a long story. <laughs> uh, uh, but that's why that was a, such a big deal because that was the first time, like, NorCal and SoCal for Alpha 2 really got to go up against each other. And then some players even came from Canada. Some players came from Kuwait. 
you know, it was it was crazy. It was it, we had like sixty some players. It was amazing. I couldn't believe how how big that tournament was, dude. That that, that was been mind blowing <laughs> to go from playing between you know just a few local arcades to hey now we have you know cross regional play. Yeah, and and uh, God, what was it like? What was it like? Uh, Ronan Rumble just had two hundred some entrants for Grand Blue Fantasy versus online. <laughs> And and back in the day, we were like, whoa, we have 60 people playing in this tournament. This is the craziest thing ever. <laughs> and I guess that's the other thing uh, people in modern times take for granted when you go to a local, you know, go to a tournament, is like, oh, we have eight players. That's so small. And I guess it's bare minimum, but you have a lot more tournaments, I guess, back in the day that had mm-hmm. significantly less. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It was always very small. I mean, uh, the very first CVS one tournament uh, at Southern Hills Golfland, uh, I actually got into Grand Finals on winner's side versus Vi. I sent Vi the losers bracket early in the tournament, and then he made it all the way back to Grand Finals and swept me until I died. I never low blocked. <laughs> I never low blocked. He just swept me. He knew when I was going to stand up every single time, and he swept me until I died. And I was very sad, but I got my second place prize and I was like, yes. And I took my brother and my friend to the Red Robin next door and I bought them dinner and I had nothing left. So that was, <laughs> that, that was it. Right. <laughs> Those things don't change. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, back then, yeah, you, you, you didn't win anything for those tournaments. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Than Cruz 60 player tournaments, uh, you know, nowadays is like, oh, dead game. <laughs> Oh, man. Wow, so man. How much that has changed. Um, I, I was going to talk. Oh, actually, someone had asked why was KF not as popular in the U.S. Uh, I, oh. I'm, I'm wondering what you're comparing it to, if, if they're comparing it to just, like, um, a specific other country or whatnot, or just, like, it, well, the rest of the world versus the U.S. It just, it just never quite caught on. Like there was, I think one of the biggest problems was that after Street Fighter became popular, Street Fighter 2 became popular, uh, too many clones came out, too many fighting games. And there was actually a, uh, it diluted the, the player base really badly. And uh, even Street Fighter suffered at that time. And, you know, after Street Fighter 2 had finished and by the time hyper fighting was done and Super came out, uh, Super was eons slower. It was, so Street Fighter 2 was slow. Champion Edition was slow. Hyper Fighting was really fast. And then Super went back to slow again. And everybody was like, what the hell? That really killed most of the scene. Most people were like, okay, game is done. The, the, the era of Street Fighter is done. And so a lot of people just stopped playing fighting games around that time. And then that's when everything started coming out. Samurai Showdown, Art of Fighting... Fatal Fury, King of Fighters, you know, all this stuff was just everywhere. And so at that point, it just spread everyone so thin between games because you just played the one that you... I mean, it's not really that different than it is today. I mean, it feels like what we've been seeing in chat even today. But, like, everybody's always like, oh, you know, if you're good at Samurai Showdown, you'd be like, Street Fighter 2 sucks. You know, Samurai Showdown is clearly the best game. It's where it's at, man. Yeah, and if you're good at Killer Instinct, you'd be like, nah, dude, Virtual Fighter sucks. Killer Instinct is clearly the best game, you know, and... Like, whatever that you played was the best game at the time, and it really diluted everything. And so at that point in time, nothing 
was going to be that popular. So, you know, KOF, Virtual Fighter, Killer Instinct, Samurai Showdown, none of those games could reach that popularity level because everybody was already just kind of sick of fighting games at that point in so, time. So, yeah, Marcelo, you, you, you got to keep in mind when you say, but KOF is different than Street Fighter, that, that also, you also have to keep in mind, that means people have to give KOF a chance on top of that. Yeah. And most people weren't. Most people already knew what fighting game they wanted to play. You're talking about an era where every week a new Street Fighter clone, like sh essentially shovelware fighting games are coming out. <laughs> yeah. And so you're like, I'm not going to waste my money or time playing this game. And also, you got to keep in mind, say say your arcade has eight Street Fighter machines that are making, you know, are making money like gangbusters. And then there's one KOF machine sitting in the corner, if at best. Why are you going to give that game a chance? No one's playing it. Why, why are you going to put time into that game? Yeah, and, 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 and like I said, even back then, you know, because even the casuals, I guess, were all playing Street Fighter 2, you had everybody playing the game. But once Street Fighter kind of dropped out of the social consciousness around Super, Super Turbo era, you know, time period, at that point in time, trust me, most of the people who were casual in the fighting games couldn't tell the difference between any of them. You know, you could say KOF is more offensive. Most of those people wouldn't be able to tell just by looking at it. Most people can't tell the difference between most of the fighting games today. If you showed somebody who was not into video games, you know, Smash Brothers Brawl and then PlayStation All-Stars, they would think it's the same game. They would really honestly think it's the same game because there's... They don't have that intimate knowledge. Because we're in the fighting game community, we have such intimate knowledge between the different games. Oh, this game's more offensive. This game. Like for everybody else, they just look at it. It's two guys beating each other up. It's the same thing I've seen already. And I played that back in Street Fighter 2. I don't need to play it now because it's the same thing. And that's just it. It's, it's, it nobody had that kind of information to, to really you know, make that kind of a judgment between the games. And, and like I said, I feel like a lot of that even still persists today. When you talk to, you know, uh, FPS players, MOBA players, you know, uh, those kind of uh, other esports players, you know, to them, fighting games are all just mashing buttons because that's what they remembered they did, right? Mm -hmm. And so even, even today, we still have that kind of problem that not a lot of people can tell the difference between all the fighting games. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the crazy part, and I mean, and that that's the point though. In order to find out the difference of that fighting game, you have to get to that point. And a lot mm -hmm. of people are like, I they're mashing buttons the same regardless of what game they're playing. Right. So they're not gonna they're not gonna tell the difference. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so there there's that. And one more point to Marcelo DK, you gotta keep in mind, you know, it's not really especially because home ports weren't the same, it was arcade <laughs> operators who would choose what games were in yeah. arcade. Not the players. Yes, the, the, yeah. The player input was putting money into the machine. Oh, this game did well. Let me keep it in. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. See, this is why, like I said, this is really important because I don't even think about that anymore. But you bringing that up is such a strong point is that you played whatever your arcade put in there. And you didn't have a choice. Nobody had the say. So 
whatever they put in there is what you ended up playing. It was very different back then. It's not like, I want to support Unist, I'm going to go buy Unist or Uniclair. You know, I want to port Sam Show, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy Sam Show. It's very different. In fact, it was always interesting. One of the reasons why I got the job at the UCLA Arcade is because I knew the manager so well already because he saw me every day. And, you know, he would actually walk up to me a lot of the times and he'd be like, have you heard about this new fighting game? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, what have you heard about it? Should I get it? Like, he would actually just take my advice because I, he knew I was so into the fighting games. And I still remember uh, I used to work food services at UCLA. And I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. I need to do something else. I got to go work at the arcade because it's like the dream job. Everyone wanted to work at the arcade at UCLA because you could sit there and just hang out. And uh, I always remember, too, because, like, there was always, like, I'm going off onto another tangent, uh, but, like, you would always rearrange the arcade from time to time just to change things up, just to make it different and put fresh new takes on it. And at one point in time, the puzzle games were all near the cashier's desk where we would sit at and, like, give the change to everybody. And uh, Eric, the manager, was like, hey, uh, we're going to move everything. Uh, let's move the puzzle games over there. And me and another guy who worked at the arcade were like, no, 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 leave the puzzle games here. Leave the puzzle games here. And he was like, Okay. And so he did that and we said that because all the girls would play the puzzle games. <laughs> ah, I see. But uh, but uh uh you know when I went to go and ask him if I could work for the arcade is I would actually walk I walked into his office at one point and I was like, "Hey Eric." He was like, "Hey, what's up, James?" And I was like, "Are you guys hiring right now for the arcade positions?" He's like, "Actually, no, we're not." And then he stopped and he looked at me. He's like, why do you ask? And I was like, oh, I kind of wanted to switch jobs and work here instead. And he was like, we'll make something work. <laughs> so he got me in there just like that. So, you know, I mean, that's, that is that's, so cool. That yeah. is so cool. But I mean, back to the original point that sent me on these tangents, you know, it really was the arcade operator who decided which fighting games were to be played. And not only that, but location in the arcade made a big difference. Street Fighter 2 was always at the front of the entrance of the arcade because then you would get the crowds and the 33-inch machines and everybody would watch it over there. And, you know, whatever other game was always in the back if they weren't doing as well, you know. And so, you know, there was so much about location and just what games they picked in, uh, to determine what got popular. And so a lot of the times, you know, even in the arcade culture, it was a lot of rich get richer kind of thing. You know, when Alpha came out, it was like a new Street Fighter. And so everyone would go and play that, you know, as opposed to here's KOF. People would be like, what's that? You know? <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I, like I never played that game. Oh, oh, I had one dude in my old arcade, weird guy who played in the back or something. Like, you know, it, it, a game needs to be, especially a fighting game, it needs to have people playing in order to draw more people to play the game. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was it was a different time back then. It's not like you you we didn't have as much control over which communities thrived as we would we do now. You know, mm. but it's all still driven through sales, right? And by sales we kind of mean like numbers now, tournament numbers. The reason why Uniclair got into Evo and everything like that is because their tournament numbers just kept increasing. So, you know, as, as long as you support the game, it, it works. 
Yeah, support your game, support your locals. Mm. Like it, it, it's, I, I know it sounds like a broken record that people just say, like it's a <laughs> thing that people just say, but no, there, there is a lot of truth behind it. Mm-hmm. Support your game, support your locals. It's, it's what keeps it going. Yeah, what, what, one of my most retweeted tweets ever that I actually wrote myself uh, <laughs> uh, was a tweet that I actually said, you know, the reason why, because people were mad that Melee made it into Evo. That one year, like one year, it was after the donation drive when it just came back and they were like, it's not a fighting game. Why is it here? Blah, blah, blah. And my, I, I actually just tweeted out. I was like, the reason why Melee is at Evo is because Melee doesn't need Evo because their community is so strong that they've, you know, created this big giant scene that Evo felt compelled to put the game in there. You know, it's, that's how it works a lot of the times. If you want your games to succeed, you have to show that you have a community outside of Evo, that you have the ability to build something. And uh, that's what Undernight did. Undernight absolutely did that. And it got rewarded by putting into Evo and I couldn't be happier for it to be there. Are you telling me that tournament runners are gonna put in games that are popular that people play? <laughs> you must be you must be kidding me right now, James. Uh, yeah, I mean, except I guess Mortal Kombat. I don't know. <laughs> that that's still heartbreaking. That's yeah. still really heartbreaking. I, quick, I still believe that like there's something weird going on there or something, but uh yeah. quick, quick two cents. As a Sam Show player, I was surprised. MK didn't come back and Sam Show did. Yeah, I was. Just, I mean, obviously, I know both of us were probably happy that Sam Show came back. I'm not happy that it was in lieu of uh, MK because I enjoy MK11 as well. I but... felt guilty. I felt guilty. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Oh, God, Evo going online. No, that wouldn't work at all, dude, because Evo is so international. It's like by the time you get to, hey, you know, guy in Texas needs to play guy in, you know, UAE. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, what's next? Is Street Fighter going to be done by the Olympics? Is that going to happen? Oh, God. Oh, man. But uh... Uh, no, it, it, it's, it wouldn't happen. Um, and I mean, that's, that's another uh, topic. I don't know if we want to do that today, but you know, just how, how much the internet has changed things, Ugh. not just for matchmaking, you know, gameplay, yeah. but tech information, <laughs> you know, and, I, and I, this is actually one point I do want to talk about, you know, now we have YouTube, now we have Twitch. Ugh. Back in the day, you had forum posts, or if you got lucky, maybe locally someone was distributing a freaking VHS tape of matches they recorded somewhere. Dude, we could talk, yeah, we could talk about that forever. I think we've gone on about like two hours. No, actually, yeah, two hours now. So we should probably bring this to a close and save more for next week. <laughs> there, there's so much to talk about. So, I mean,. My, my last point is, isn't even like we're going to dive too deep into another top point. It's just our community has so much culture and so much mm-hmm. history. It is yeah. definitely worth talking about. And, and that's one of the things that makes me happiest about it. Because, you know, uh, again, like without trying to get into it too much, the arcade culture was very different because the al- arcade culture was always a non-discriminatory culture. I talked about how we chased away strangers, but we did it by beating them in the game. But if they put a quarter on the machine, you were able to play. We, we never said you can't play. Like you put the quarter on there and we would just be like, time to just kick your ass and make you cry out the door basically. But you always played. And so 
arcades were low cost a lot of the times for you to hang out at, and they were non-discriminatory. You know, it, it serviced a lot of different uh, uh, wealth brackets. Uh, it, 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 you know, it was home for a lot of different ethnicities, for different genders. It was a very non-discriminatory area. And so because of that, it is kind of a universal language and there is so much culture tied to arcades that, you know, we, we really could talk about this forever, basically. I mean, when I first entered FGC, that was the most amazing thing because I was in a very white neighborhood going to school and I go to suddenly FGC events. I'm meeting people from so many different cultures, ethnicities, mm-hmm. backgrounds, and it was like a whole new world opened up to me because this this is a person that might not ordinarily talk to me, but we're, since we're playing Street Fighter together, <laughs> we're just talking about everything, and I'm just I'm learning so much, and it's exciting. I yeah, love it. That's, I that's still the, love it. That's the best part. That's the best part because like all these people that you're talking to and hanging out with, you know, you see the oddest you know groups and stuff, but it's it's so cool, and it's 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 such a melting pot. Especially because I mean, look look how international it is, right? You know, we have. I mean, my favorite story from last year was me flying to Pakistan and having a giant group of players from Pakistan cheering him as he landed and came out of the plane into the airport and giving him gifts and stuff and like wanting to take. I mean, like. Like a player from Korea flew to Pakistan for a video game and they were all in the airport to cheer him and welcome him. I mean, that's like the kind of feel good story that I feel like we don't get to talk about in the in the fighting game community enough, you know, because that to me, that was always one of the the the, you know, make James kind of start tearing up moments, you know. Our, our our community, our culture is beautiful. Yeah. Or at the very least, it can be, and it's yeah. it's it's something. That's why I really really want to sing my praises, and I want to get as many people as I can into the FGC mm-hmm. because there's a lot of wonderful things here. Yeah. If you know how to find it, if yeah. you know the people. And and again, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and pretend that there aren't scumbags here or there aren't problems that we have to solve as well. I mean. There's tons of things, but we're working on it. But, you know, I feel like fighting games are a lot farther ahead than a lot of other, you know, places and a lot of other, uh, you know, communities out there. But again, that's going to be my bias because I'm in it and I love the FGC and everything like that. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I like the I like what we have in the fighting game community. And I feel like we're in such a great place to already be one of the more progressively welcoming communities than than a lot of other places. I feel like we're already in a good position for that. So that's why I'm going to keep fighting for it in any in any case. So and, and same for me. And uh, you know, as as times change, I mean, we were even talking about this very early on in our, in this segment, talking about how you know even even people's sense of humor, things that are considered okay or tolerable <laughs> back then, or yeah. you know, things change oh, and. Yes. Or, or, you know, throws, you know, not allowing to throw people. Right. Um, it's, I, I want to strive to make the FGC as 
open as possible where people can feel welcome as welcoming as possible yes. there you go mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i want to make strive to make it as welcoming as possible because there is so much beauty and you know so much beauty in the fgc that i feel like a lot of other gaming communities don't have related to the human personable <laughs> in-person aspect yeah and because think about it, a lot of other esports are or like say so almost all the other games in esports that aren't fighting games don't have an arcade history. They were always mm -hmm. meant to be played like online from yep. the get-go for the most yeah. part. And, so and that's, that's a very different background. And that's one of the, I mean, uh, you know what? Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and close on this idea here, but like uh, that is one of the most important things that guys like Vi have become one of the main community guys out there, you know, that people like me keep talking about these kind of things because Preserving that arcade culture, in my opinion, is so important because the arcade culture was about face-to-face. -face. Even if, like when I first started, my first year at UCLA, uh, a couple of the players who were there who were already the established dominant players, you know, they didn't like me because I was just like this young little punk kid, who are you, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then once I started beating them, then it was like, hey, let's hang out, you know, kind of thing. It was like, you proved yourself, but I'm not trying to paint that as like, you know, there's this weird like fight clubby kind of mentality. No, that happens because you're in person. And no matter what, if someone starts to prove themselves to you because you're right there next to them and you see them face to face, it just, you, it's that much easier for you to gain that kind of respect, you know, for somebody else that's there playing with you. And, and you can't hide behind a monitor to be a jerk. You can't hide on the internet to be a jerk. And there is something about that, that, you know, like I said, you put a quarter up, you can play. You pay your entry fee, you can play. That's why fighting game tournaments are always going to be open bracket tournaments like that because we're preserving that in person. You know, anybody has a right to play and you can prove yourself. If you, you know, you give yourself, if, if you have it in you to be able to prove yourself, you can become one of the best at that arcade as well. And, uh, and it, it was, it was awesome. It was great. And like I said, there were bad parts to it, but for the most part, my memories of Southern Hills Golfland, of all of us losing to Vi, taking turns, losing, losing, losing. My main memory is actually going to norms afterwards and all of us sitting there and talking and me just talking to Vi being like, why did you do this? Or what, like, what was I doing wrong? Like, what, like, you know, you know, and we would just be talking strategies and everything like that. And Vi would just laugh at me and stuff, you know, that was, that, that to me is the memory of, of the, the fighting game community of the arcades for me. So that is always been one of my favorite things, you know, after a tournament or whatever <laughs> you go or local, you yeah. all go out to eat. Maybe you all go watch a movie. You all hang out. Yeah. And one of my favorite things ever had was a round table balance discussion with other high level players. We were just like, and we have, we're having a really fun time. We were feeling so hyped up. We were getting <laughs> really, really into just talking about game balance. Uh, last point I just wanted to show just before, um, this is my, my final point when you mentioned golf land is uh -huh. so when I was a kid, I actually subscribed to Tips and Tricks magazine. <laughs> and so I still have a bunch of my old issues all the way up until they canceled in like 2009 or so. Right. And so I have an issue from August 2003 here. And there is a section called Tournament Report. 
that talked all about the top level top players in like third strike oh yeah marvel 2 cvs 2 and it's funny i saw these names growing up before i got into the fgc and i see names like oh justin wong ricky ortiz john troy i have no idea who these people are i never would have imagined 20 years down the line <laughs> i'm gonna know these people and i've talked to them i've, I've had oh. meals with them I've, I've stayed in the same room with them it's Dude. it's crazy to me and the last thing I'll add to that, you know why the that section existed in Tips and Tricks magazines? No, actually. Because Jason Wilson worked for that magazine. Jason actually, Wilson, what? the guy who owns uh, what is the arcade in the in in like Tennessee area? Yeah, Jason Wilson. There you go. Old school fighting game player, also one of the finalists in the old Nintendo tournament long time ago with like Rad Racer and stuff like that and all this stuff. He he was a big fighting guy. He's the guy who owns the uh, arcade out in like Tennessee, I think it's uh, it's like Galaxy Arcade or something like that. He used to run Midwest Championships. So before Keats took it over to UFGT, uh, Jason Wilson was the one who ran Midwest Championships. And then it became UFGT with Keats running it. And then Keats, uh, you know, passed it on to Rick the Hado and all that stuff like that. So there you go. There's that history right there. <laughs> Thank you, because now that's new bits of lore I never knew for magazines and yep. information I've seen for like the past 20 years of my life. And yep. I never knew that. Jason Wilson was definitely part of the FGC. The very first time i met jason wilson he showed up to the ucla arcade and he played me in high I, super turbo and i played zangi versus his guile and i beat him and he was like you're actually really good and he's like i didn't know I, we weren't sure if you were actually good and i was like what the hell you know who i am he's like yeah like my name is jason wilson and blah 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 like he was telling me all that and he actually went to ucla for a while and, and we played a bunch of times during like Third strike and alpha three days and stuff. So <laughs> so cool. Yep, there you go. Wow. More Man. yeah, Galaxy I, I, Arcade I, I, in Nashville. Thank you, Cone. Thank you. Wow. Dude, thank you, thank you, James. This, this, <laughs> I have learned so much from this and I, I can't wait because I know there's still so much more oh, yeah. to learn and so much more to find out. And hearing hearing stories and hearing all this lore directly from you is just it's exciting. It's, it's mine. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. And like I said, that's why I was really excited about this. Really uh, excited about having you kind of be the curator of this whole thing. Because like I said, I know how much about this that you're passionate about yourself, that you love this kind of stuff. So I knew you would be the right person to, 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 to kind of cover this kind of thing. Because you would ask the questions I think that the chat would want to ask. You know what I mean? So uh, I think that, that that's working out good. So uh i mean so there there's so much i want to know and i imagine there's still many things that the chat wants to know uh not not to say like we're going to answer questions now but if chat wants to you know prepare questions like you know things you want to know you want to ask us questions throughout maybe another stream or whatever just you know yeah. write those down get those ready yeah. i'm pretty sure someone's gonna know something about what you want to know yeah and, and if you're watching this on youtube just put your questions down in the in the comments below and we'll try to go through some of those questions as well about old school fighting game stuff and you know we'll have we'll have a uh, cory uh curate a bunch of stuff so <laughs> i'll make you do the work cory <laughs> no i'm just kidding <laughs> what what are you doing uh oh oh what happened? Corey! No! 
No! <laughs> like, comment, and subscribe so I can afford the phone the, to unstuff the internet tubes uh, so that Corey can come back. <laughs> All I saw on my end was Corey going, and then he disappeared. But see, like, subscribe. You know, the more you guys subscribe here, uh, I will definitely, you know, treat Corey to a bunch of meals and all these things like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can keep this up. I can keep making content like this if you guys enjoy it. Uh, I've been trying to uh, build up to more subscribers and everything. But if you guys are enjoying this kind of stuff, Please uh, subscribe or donations, bits, gift subs, all those kind of things. Greatly appreciated. But uh, thank you guys for watching. I guess I'm going to. Uh, I guess I'm going to say goodbye on behalf of Corey Bell. He says he can't connect back to Discord anymore. I'm saying goodbye on your behalf. There we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me see here. Uh, did I get him back? Did I get Corey back? Uh, all right. Anyways, thanks, guys, uh, for watching. <laughs> thanks, guys, for hanging out. Yeah, I know. I was like, hey, you can do all the work. And then he disappeared, and then that's he's gone. But we're going to continue this. I'm going to keep trying to do this every Monday uh, at around this time, at around 5 o'clock. So if you guys enjoy this, make sure you follow, like, subscribe, do all that stuff for future episodes and uh again thanks for tuning in follow here on twitch.tv slash jchenzor for the chenzor dynasty i'm keep trying to come up with more content for you guys have a good night and peace out everybody i should i should like play the guile theme here dun, 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 round one fight